I'm Eric Peterson, and you're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. But you know that there are people who look at me and they don't see a charity case? Who like me like this? Like this? Come on, you know you deserve better than this place? Than those idiots? You could be... more. It's not a compliment. I used to think it was, but I am so done with trying to be more. This is it. This should be enough. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Kevin Can Podcast Himself, your companion podcast for Kevin Can Fuck Himself, the new series from AMC. Not so new anymore, because tonight we're talking about the season finale. Well, hopefully season finale. Episode 8, Fixed. It was written by the series creator Valerie Armstrong, and it was directed by Anna DeCosa. Like, I don't know, six, seven of the eight episodes have been. Ms. DeCosa has been very busy with this series, as it turned out. Hey, Caroline! How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. I can't believe it's already the finale. It feels so abrupt. I wasn't ready. Uh, I was not ready yet, either. You and I have covered a lot of limited series. We've done a bunch of five, six, eight-episode shows. I feel like this one went the absolute fastest. This is a huge cliffhanger we're left on, and there's such, you know, crossed fingers for season two that it just seems like you want to go back and try to just, like, milk as much information out of the the few episodes we have as possible. I know, and thankfully, this is the kind of show that when you go and rewatch it, especially with the hindsight of where it ends, it takes on so many more meanings. You know, just innocuous lines that maybe you skipped over, a little throwaway dialogue between side characters here and there you know you go back and listen to it and, and there's going to be some of that we cover actually in this episode especially when it gets to neil talk uh in a bit there's so much stuff there the word stealth keeps coming to mind uh you know i well i should say you guys should definitely stick around because when caroline and i are done talking about the episode we actually have two great interviews that we're going to be bringing you we were lucky to sit down with eric peterson who plays kevin and uh his father brian howe who plays pete mcroberts on the show we got to talk to both of them this week ahead of our coverage for this episode and to be clear brian howe did not father <laughs> eric peterson tom peterson dude which we're so lucky to have tom peterson over on our facebook page kevin can elf himself fans Eric Peterson is not the secret love child of Brian Howe. Uh, he that play- we're aware. <laughs> that we're aware. He is only his uh, TV father. He is the yes. TV father. They were both wonderful. I was so, so glad that we got a chance to talk to them. They were so easygoing and happy to be chatting with us. Yeah, a real a real love for the show, I think, that comes through. Uh, I think both of them seemed appreciative to be a part of something that was so different and, and really groundbreaking. And I think that comes through in the conversation. But in our conversation with Brian, uh, we brought up this idea of Pete 
being a stealth character, which is which is a theory you actually really put forward, Caroline. And it turned out Neil was a little bit of a stealth character, too, where there were things going on with him throughout the season that now when we go back and look at it, we'll see they were really dropping little breadcrumbs the entire time that maybe we just weren't paying attention to. I'm so surprised at how much I was paying attention to small moments like the the gap dress with Patty or, you know, talking about things like laughing at revelations for Pete and these little small moments. But for Neil, Neil <laughs> managed to really just slide by. I only picked up his character development through stories other people told, like he was the one that you know, found their mom and that type of thing. But I really did not listen nearly close enough to get him where he ends in this episode. Now, to be fair, I think you and I were correctly picking up for the last three episodes or so. They were really turning a light on Neil and, and they were pushing him forward as a character more in the character development arc where it felt like he was coming apart at the seams more and more. Yeah, we had gotten little tiny little nuggets, you know, even from the very start, you know, the whole idea of like ripping his shirt open feeling of him being like, no, the why God, why moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were getting little bits, but you're right. I mean, everything having to do with Kevin's birthday and how much they had to handle him with kid gloves really started to put forward the idea that like, wow, he's a responsibility, not just a friend. Kevin and Pete really don't treat him like an equal. He's really not a a friend to them as much as a responsibility. He reminds me of one of those people who, you know, the neighbor kid who just shows up in the driveway all the time. And like you invited certain friends over, but then there's like one neighbor kid who just shows up and you're like, oh, hey, and you don't want to be like mean or anything, but they're the one that like always wants to tell you about their hamster or something. And you're like, okay, all right. Like, Like, that's Neil to me. He's not your, he's not the friend you seek out. He's the friend who shows up. He sidles up next to you. We've seen it a bunch, and especially starting in the Tricky Ricky uh, episode, Kevin's birthday episode. But tonight when they're in the diner and they're having a campaign event and Neil comes in and he's trying to lure Kevin away with the ice cream truck and, and ultimate hide and seek and, uh, he, you know, hide and go seek. And he says, you'll change your tune when the ice cream truck comes along. Just like a little kid would try and argue a pair like, you know, ice cream truck and hide and go seek, man. You're not turning that down. I know you. Now, to be fair, I keep money in the front foyer drawer because the because <laughs> i'm the one in my household that when i hear the song playing in the street i'm the one who's like run get your shoes like i'm like yelling for the ice cream truck if you remember mike we had to stop mid we stopped our recording yes i was in the middle of a podcast at the end i was like um the ice cream truck's here i gotta go Yes. <laughs> and you didn't even know what happened because they didn't tell you the ice cream truck no. came. I was just like, there's a situation. Yeah. And I like ran off for like 15 minutes and I came back and I'm like, awesome. I got a bomb pop. <laughs> now, and, and now I, I mean, we should say you and I, I mean, we record long podcast episodes together, much to your chagrin, but it happens. We frequently hey, get going for well. No, just to be fair on the chagrin side, it's just a lengthy edit. Yes, that's a, all. Yes, because you do all of the editing. That's why it's not for lack of conversation. But you and I, though, don't take breaks when we sit here we hit record and and we're gonna go for a while today so for you to get up mid-sentence <laughs> 
to go do something, I was like, oh, something happened to one of the kids or a dog or something. Headphones yeah. off and ran because you don't. You have split seconds, split seconds. It does not drive at like one mile an hour. It drives at like ten miles an hour, and I'm like, police! <laughs> I'm always like, whoever got their shit on first, like, go tell them to wait. Tell them to wait. <laughs> so I understand. I don't want to look down on Neil. Is the point of my story because about the ice cream truck portion? It's the idea that he can't. He cannot even let go, like, to allow Kevin to have any growth at all. It turns out that Neil is, like, sitcom personified. I I, want to empathize here with you for a second because I have very clear memories of me as a youngster in Queens running through my house with money in my hand waving it. I have I have memories of me running up the street trying to flag the Mr. Softy truck to stop. And Mr. Softy only came around between nine and ten o'clock at night. And oh, running running up at the dead center of the street, you know, and like, stop, stop, I need my double cone, stop. You know, very clear memories. So I get the need for the ice cream truck. What's a double cone? Uh, so it starts like a regular cone at the bottom, but then instead of one head where ice cream sits in it branches into almost like a candelabra kind of thing and it's two uh holders and so ice cream sits in two holes and that's considered like one person's ice cream well when you're affected yes (laughs) (laughs) wow i did not know that existed well, so, but you had an actual, like, ice cream machine on the truck. I, th- my oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Mr. Suffy was, by, like, the real he's, deal. He's just, he's just freezers in the back of a truck. So he's just pulling out, you know, prepackaged stuff out there. Oh, right. no, no. This was coming. This was, like, soft serve. I mean, they had frozen selection, too. Like, you could get your Spider-Man or it would be, like, SpongeBob today, you know, with the well, bubblegum nose. Or Mickey nose. Mouse, as Neil mentioned. Oh, there you go. See? Or, like, you know, a patriotic bomb pop, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also had, uh, Mr. Suffy had, like... Uh, 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 soft uh, soft serve machines, so you could get chocolate, vanilla, or twist uh, cones. Apparently, double cone or double cone, the the twin cone, as it were. <laughs> How do you walk away? Like you walk away double fisted? That's so. Funny. No, no, it's one holder. It just branches up. It branches. To yes, ones. the the engineering wow. feat. This is the kind of stuff. This is why we need to keep going to like and have NASA, so we have the technology <laughs> to allow us to have two cones sitting on top of a one cone holder. Wow. Yes. Wow. I'm really impressed. I, I, I'm really impressed just thinking about it. It was delicious. I'm actually a thousand percent typing right now. Like, what is a double, double? <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will send you a picture of it when we're done. <laughs> anyway, so, so, but it, uh, it, getting back to the show, an ice cream corner is now finished. Uh, when, when he starts when he says when he says i'm gonna start counting to three thousand, and they're like okay buddy and he runs away and pete kevin look at each other like two exasperated parents and they say like we should have started doing that years ago it really hit home to me they really treat him like like that like an annoying next door neighbor kid or or just like a small child who needs so much handholding and it reminds you that kevin is actually an adult and obviously pete is an adult they bring themselves down to Neil's childish level because they are immature in so many ways. But in other ways, they are just like big children, but they're adults who can act like big children. You know what I mean? I don't know. So Neil is like a child trapped in a man's body. Kevin and Pete are like men act like, acting like children. I think we should be like clear that we do understand why Neil is this way. I mean, the whole, you know, we said stunted growth and everything that happened way Very back. traumatic childhood, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so we get this part, but it's the, I guess I'm so surprised at myself and us in general for not ever getting 
guessing that it would be more than just immaturity, that that immaturity could actually be be more aggressive than that. Yeah. Can, can I play a, a little clip montage of early Neil clips from the show that in hindsight and given how this episode ends, maybe we should have paid more attention to? Yeah, absolutely. But I do just want to mention that you should have just said that the trough part of the cone is actually just like wider so it can hold like two parts. No, that's not the one I'm looking at. I, it I says the Mr. Softy cone right here. <laughs> All right, play me those clips. And I guess maybe it is a trough, but you could see from the outside where it looks like it is two, it is two separate cup holders. Okay, hold on. Let me it keep is, on it. For listeners at home, if you want to, it, uh, Google search the Joy Twin Scoop Cake yeah, Cone. Yeah, but that's just like a wide trough. Yes, but you yeah. see, yeah, but you see from the outside yeah, though, yeah, it I looks like, like it. it's you know, it's like a bra holder for cones for ice cream. See, I was going to say it's a men's genitalia, not so much women related. Well, that reflects each of us and in, in our and <laughs> how we approach in the our world. Personal experiences. Anyway, so here are some clips. Neil, breakfast is for family. See, Kevin's the husband. I'm the father-in-law. Yeah, I'm not like a brother. No, you're more like a cousin who just got out of jail for stalking. <laughs> Everyone's secretly kind of hoping he goes back. How is Keith? Bad. Okay, now, while that wasn't about Neil specifically, it was about a cousin of Pete's, it still is indicative of how they think about him, right? The, here, here is one from the uh, from episode two, New Tricks. This is them when they're plotting revenge on the neighbors for stealing uh, this Belichick hoodie. Set UPS on fire. <laughs> no, set the neighbors on fire. No! Neil, we don't let you do fire anymore, remember? I know, but still, the flame, she calls to me. We so that is, you know, that's a very interesting thing. And that scene ends with the tag on there is Patty is going to go to Salon to get the fireworks that they have left over. Neil learns that they've been at the fireworks have been at the Salon and he's angry because sometimes he likes to blow fireworks up. And they all shouted him in unison. We don't let you do fire anymore. What? Is he doing with the fire? <laughs> Clearly, yeah, he has a history here. I, I'm focusing on that stalker portion because I know he was playing hide and go seek, but essentially he was like stalking that situation. Uh, especially someone given his size, being a stalker is is counterintuitive. Yeah. Uh, and here is maybe the most damaging thing that we probably glossed over and should have paid more attention to. This is Neil himself, and it's got your name on it, so legally it belongs to you. Your grasp of the legal system is so interesting. My public defender said the same thing. What? Yeah, he's got a public defender up in here. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Okay, to be fair, going back to episode one, we talked about casting. And we talked about how Brian Howe had been in so many different shows across genres. And so the fact that we turned our focus to Pete as like the likely one to kind of pop out and come into drama made more sense to me than Alex Bonifer, who, yes, he he's a young man and he's had a career, but it's not as decorated as Brian's. And so for me, I was like, okay, this just makes sense that the larger role goes to Brian, right? He's going to end up playing more of a role. It was, I think it's the curse of that laugh track again. You can hide so much bad behavior in 
and and bad behavior and questionable dialogue inside that laugh track where you're not even focusing on the words because you're so conditioned to laugh at it or or just to not really even consider it or think about it because the laugh track kind of shields it almost or makes it like that word again it makes it more stealth that uh scene with the where he talks about the public defender that's where they're they're talking about how to get the kevin hart banner hung from the house you know so it's lots of hijinks and it's a one line just tossed in the middle of this like wacky Kevin hijink scene. So it's like misdirection. It's almost like watching a magician on stage. They're just not, they're just hiding these little clues in here left and right without you really focusing on it. I also think that Pete was a bit of a misdirection and maybe season two is going to turn out different, but I think that all the attention that I paid to him and well, where, you know, what part that Pete played. I remain convinced that we're right, that Pete is interesting to watch and pay attention to for that direct line of why Kevin is and how Kevin is the way he is as an adult. Listen to some of the things that Pete says, especially when it comes to Allison really are pointed and and sharp and acidic and out of left field. He says, you know, is this fun, Allison? I thought she drowned eight years ago at a water park. It, it took me a moment to be like, eight years ago, these men were at a water park? And you know they don't have kids or anything? <laughs> I was like, oh my God. They have Neil. You can't see all three of these guys in a rubber tube going around on the lazy river. I for yeah, sure can. Yeah, I can. I absolutely can. And now that they serve like hard alcohol at every water park, I could definitely see them. I mean, and you know, if they get a view of like a sports bar, you know, going around the lazy river, they get like score update like every, what, seven minutes when they go around. That's a fantastic day for those guys. Uh, but let, listen to this clip from Pete and the way he, the way, the language he uses in reference to Allison. You know, in my photography days, we'd call that camera meat. <laughs> photography days. I was a Boston paparazzo. Oh, is that why you got punched in the face by James Taylor? <laughs> no. Which is a very funny scene, and, and the whole James Taylor thing, and the no without further explanation. But he's calling Allison camera meat. Yeah, that's pretty gross. It's pretty gross. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty gross. And I mean, there are a ton of, I could have done even more clips of Pete saying bad things about Allison or to Allison. I mean, uh, thinking of calling her a wet blanket inside Tricky Ricks. There is a really important reason to watch Pete, and I'm excited for season two to see how that unfolds. Because at the end of the day, Pete is proud of his son when his son is doing the most outrageous, maybe immoral or amoral things. But it doesn't nearly come close to what Neil does at the end of this episode. No, it does not. I think the last thing we need to clear, because there was some, there's been discussion about this, and so I want to just talk about it, with the gun. So there was, stepping back from episode 7, I guess this is more housekeeping. There was some thought that the gun was Neil's gun. We, we were talking to some people, and this came up a couple times. It's not Neil's gun. It's the gun that Patty and Allison buried in the backyard that they pistol whipped the truck driver with that they got from Rooster, Red Rooster, in the in the woods. Well, the clip clears it up. So let's uh, let's just play this clip from episode seven. Where the hell did you get that? I found it out in the backyard with Neil's metal detector. I don't know. The last tenant must have buried it out there before he went to prison. But it's ours now. 
Okay, so it's using Neil's metal detector, Kevin found the gun that he says must have belonged to the last tenant who buried it before he went to prison. But it wasn't Neil's gun, and they're not talking about Neil being in prison, they're talking about the last tenant burying it there before going to prison. And who knows, maybe Kevin's just talking out of his ass, because we know we know how that gun got there. It had nothing to do with whoever lived there last. So just a little housekeeping to clear up whose gun is what, and the gun has nothing to do with Neil, as it turns out. Let's talk about that title card, Mike. What stood out to you, the sound aspect of it or the animation aspect? The sound, for sure, because the laugh track completely stops. And then just that totally awkward, like, (laughs) kind of cough. That was, for me, that was everything. That was where I was like, whoa, everything is turned on its head. Yeah, the 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 laugh track fading out to just a really uncomfortable cough was, was telling, and especially I think parallels the episode really well because in the end the sitcom scene ends in a very violent and disturbing way, and even the laugh track finally gives way, and and, and there's no more laugh track coming in over that scene by the time it, it's finished. Also, there's no more buzzing now in the first seven episodes. Every time the title card showed, it gave, you know, the the lots of laugh track laughter, and it gave way to the high-pitched buzzing sound, which we were taught by the show was associated with Allison when she was having a really high-stress moment, uh, especially when she was around Kevin and needed to get away, when she was feeling uh, intense pressure or, or some kind of mental, you know, intensity or anxiety. The, the high-pitched whine would, would come in the show. And that was always represented in the title card in the first seven episodes. I think it's telling that it's not here this episode. And I think it's telling because... I think it relates to something that Patty even brings up to Allison is why isn't Allison more freaked out? Allison is like a stone cold, like killer mode this episode from getting over Kevin shooting Nick to immediately going to wanting to plant the drugs and the cash in Nick's apartment to not really being affected by the fact that Kevin shot someone in their house just a few hours before to the way she also kind of manipulates it as a really shitty friend and person to Patty in this episode. I, Allison is not uh, is not meek or a victim, uh, despite what Tammy may think about her in this episode. I, I, how do you take the lack of the buzzing sound? The title fixed coming right after our episode seven broken implies that she has come through some sort of transition, some sort of metamorphosis here, and she is more solidly who she's supposed to be. So I guess the fixed portion of it all implies that like she's she is standing on her own two feet and she's no longer having all that anxiety. I get it, and I think that they back it up evidence-wise here in all the things she does. But just uh, relating-wise, most of us would be shook by the concept of any shooting being done in the house. And no matter how much she was expecting it, we still would would have that fear, you know, because she starts at the end of seven. She, she is like on the edge of the bed, like, <gasps> you know, and so then for her to kind of just ease into this, for lack of a better term, I mean, she's just like stiff upper lipping it, you know, but she really does seem steady and calm. This has been the when we've seen Allison at her quote unquote best, I guess, is whenever there's chaos, she's the one who's steady. And she actually kind of does better when there's chaos going on around her. I agree with everything that you just said. And I want to hammer home the metamorphosis concept really hard. The animation in the title card 
I think, really supports that idea. In the very first episode, it was a black card with the with the white word sliding. Here, it's a white. It's the complete color inverse. So it's a white screen with the black letters sliding to present the fuck. So in every episode, you guys, we've talked about it, I think, in all of them, there's always something over the fuck, right? It, it, a bare light bulb, dripping blood, lipstick kiss marks, mm-hmm. the burn hole. But yes. in the very first episode, it was a sliding where the screen, the animation slid across F-U-C-K, landing on the F, back to the F again. Here, it's the exact same animation, F-U-C-K, back to the F, but the colors are inverted. And I took that after watching the episode, especially after watching it a couple of times, as this is the 180 of Allison. Allison has come through something and is changed in this episode. She is not Allison McRoberts from episode one, Living the Dream. This is a new Allison uh, that we haven't seen before through coming through her change here in, in episode eight fixed. I would say that if I was to describe her personality in terms of that of that title card, at the beginning, she was an anxious person with moments of little clarity, just teeny tiny moments where she'd be like, hey, I should do it like this. But it was really small to now we, she is like in her, her just serenity now, stiff upper lip, like dealing with everything very matter of factly with moments of anxiety. So she is like the inverse of it. She is much quicker quicker to problem solving mode and less reliance say on patty to come up with a solution or or to be saved and that was a that was a big theme of this episode of saving do i need to be saved or am i gonna have to save myself be saved need to be saved or just find the way i am currently no saving required a hundred percent and i think all of that came through really well in her conversation with sam out by the garbage dumpsters behind bev's diner i want to play this clip here because i think this is the show's hypothesis in a nutshell sam it's kevin is why he gets away with everything it's why he always wins you say that like it's destined it is this whole world is designed for guys like kevin and pete and neil i don't know that sam shot someone. Kevin shot someone in our home and the cops couldn't care less. They're in there toasting him right now. This whole game is rigged. Fixed. In the face of that, are you going to just give up? Because that's what Allison says right after where I cut that off there. She says, I give up. I'm just going to give up. Or are you going to stand up Dust yourself off and fight back and fight back with whatever you need to do to even the playing field. And I think ultimately that's where Allison gets to. And I think that's why she seems so different, say, to Patty. And I think that's why she seems so steady. And it's really the truest difference from how she began the show. She's decided not to give up, despite what she says here to Sam. She's she's guns blazing like I'm going to I'm going to fuck everyone and I will I will I will merge from the flames like a goddamn phoenix. Well, so can we can we talk about Sam and Allison and Please. their sort of relationship resolution, if you will? Sam popping up on the scene and first of all, I was really taken aback when he was like, "No, uh Kevin can hear anything I need to say like right here in this living room." And then he's all like, "I so I understand why you wanted to take a break." And she like immediately like looks over her shoulder like, "What what part? You have started off a conversation here that is not is not for all ears. Like, right. what are you thinking of? Sam, <laughs> you know, he is. He, I started off the season with such high hopes for Sam. This this idea of someone who 
was not so bogged down by the system, you know, the system represented by the small world that that so many of these people never grew out of or left. Kevin, Allison, Patty, Neil, they grew up in this town. They are living in this town now. They will all likely die in this town. You know, Sam was, Sam entered the show like this breath of fresh air, truth bomb dropping like light you know into Allison's world this this idea that it could be different than what Kevin promised her because of his own issues because of how he sees Allison and 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 his refusal to see her who she is now and and only chooses to see her as he remembers her and so he is burned and and really really put off in a really way that almost seems like it hurts his masculinity but anytime that she makes it clear to him that she's not the teenage girl that he knew and yet she's a 35 year old woman uh all of that kind of stuff really soured and especially in the last the couple of episodes sam has really become his own nasty version of a kevin in mm-hmm. this in this white knight savior complex that he is very fond of it was bothering me in this episode where he's putting down kevin you know where you know he's not a mastermind that was what led into that clip you know and she's like you don't even get it you don't even understand like this world is rigged for the kevins it's kevin like because he says it's just kevin she's like you ass it's kevin is why he gets away with all the shit that he does sam doesn't get it and as much as saying it's just Kevin might sound like some sort of slam to, to Kevin, it's actually the most dismissive thing you can say to Allison because he or she is upset about Kevin. And if you say it's just Kevin, I mean, like, how much more dismissive can you be of her being upset? And I agree with you, man. He has painted himself the word savior on his back like it's a jersey he wears every week. Yeah. You could see the cross. He could see the cross dragging behind him, so he could climb up on it like a martyr. Yeah, and when he's like, you know, you get, you know, you don't, you can't even help yourself, kind of thing. I'm like, Sam, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you are so gross. Well, this is how much more gross Sam can be. Oh, being with you is gonna what? It's gonna save me. It'd be an improvement. Oh. Okay, um, you know, Kevin. When we met, he got me out of my parents' house because he insisted that we move in together after two months, and I guess I let him save me, too. I'm not Kevin. No, I know. But you know that there are people who look at me and they don't see a charity case? Who like me like this? Like this? Come on, you know you deserve better than this place? Than those idiots? You could be... more. It's not a compliment. God, I used to think it was, but I am so done with trying to be more. This is it. This should be enough. When she says, there are people that like me like this, and his response is, like this? Doing, like, his hands up and down? I wanted to jump jump through the goddamn TV and like and hit him. Like that is a gross fucking thing to say to someone. It is the biggest like compliment, not compliment in the world to hear you yeah. could be so much more. And I don't know. I mean, you have to tell me if men get the same type of thing. I think for women, I, I'm just going to say in my experience, there's that whole you can have it all. You know, you're supposed to be having a full career. You're supposed to be a, a mother. You're supposed to be a great wife. And, you know, just be able to handle everything across the board. 
So if you're not doing everything at like full speed, then you could be so much more. To me, all these years, it's always sounded like, oh, you believe in me. This is encouragement. I have the potential to to reach these high heights and you see that in me. And only really watching this episode did I feel like, wait a minute, (laughs) where does anyone ever get off looking at another person and being like, you know what? You could be so much more like this version of yourself is just not good enough. Oh, it's so painful. I will hear that differently for the rest of my life. So props to Valerie Armstrong on that because she made me hear a line in a way that as a woman, I have heard my whole life. Was it damning by faint praise? I don't even know if that captures it correctly, but I, I, and I love Allison's rejection here. And I love that she admits the fact that she's always, she's always heard that as a compliment. Well, it implies you have the potential, you have the intelligence, yes. you have the, the talent, you have the right. skills. You're, you're all more. raw talent, and if you were just yeah. molded, if, uh-huh. if, 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 and, if, and yes. this person standing in front of you is the sculptor. You're just this raw clay, and you've just been walking around like an idiot, just raw clay this whole time. And now they're finally here to carve you into something worthwhile. Hold up! <laughs> I mean, you know, she is 35 years old. She is a whole formed person. Cut it out. Yeah. And you hear Sam say that line. And man, you can't help but think back to Jen telling him that he's one hell of a project without, without getting, without nodding a little bit with Jen and, 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 and being like, yeah, girl, I understand what you were saying. This guy's a long fucking day. He got so butthurt. Yeah. That Jen said, you're a project. He got butthurt and left her because of that and now he's standing in front of Allison saying you're such a project and I can make you into something better (laughs) oh my god do you even hear yourself and look at how we do that to one another I don't know how much you think about toxic masculinity as a guy who is really turned off by masculinity uh, and, and, and especially the way it's portrayed in a lot of pop culture and in media, the, the near constant toxic masculinity that we're fed. This show is really smart and I have enjoyed it because through Kevin and through Sam, they have both epitomized two aspects of toxic masculinity in such smart ways that are so different, but also both so prevalent in our society and also so hard to stomach when you stop and think about it. You have Kevin who goes to the sperm clinic to prove to his wife that if they have fertility problems, it is her problem, not his, because he knows he's a man's man and can and do it right. And everything about Kevin is, I tell it like it is. He says in this episode when she says, what's Yeah, thing, which is some great physical acting Annie Murphy does there. She like she basically grabs her crotch, kind of like mimics it. What's yeah, thing? And he says, and he does like a fist pump, and he goes, "I tell it like it is." Kevin is that guy. He's like sports bar cracking beers against his skull, man's man masculinity. So you're right. We're we're going over to toxic. But when you said that's masculine, it's like, but that's toxic. Uh, yes, I said, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. That's that's a very common toxic masculinity. The idea of everything you say to me is in an insult to my manhood. And so I must react in the most over the top way to prove to you that 
I am a straight, red-blooded, heterosexual male that will bang women and drink liquor and, you know, fuck you all. Like, that kind of toxic masculinity reactionary aspect. Very prevalent and very much the Kevin of the Kevins of the world. I was rewatching an episode when I was collecting clips. There's this idea when, uh, when Allison and Patty can, uh, connive to get, uh, Kevin and Neil back together again for the chili cook off and they make their friendship chili. Kevin and Neil have this whole comments, uh, conversation at the end about how they realize that they're best together, but in a straight way. You know, it, it's like, I don't know if you remember in like the late 90s, the, the 2000s, there was the uh, no homo. Oh, Lord. You know, men slap each other on the butts in baseball games, but no homo. Like that whole kind of toxic masculinity is oh, gross my. and is prevalent. And it's what the Kevins represent. But the Sam toxic masculinity is represented in this white knight savior bullshit that so many guys who recoil at the Kevins just the way Sam does. They look at the Kevins and they recoil and they go. That guy is uh, is a troglodyte. He is a Neanderthal and represents the worst of men. I though will raise you up and make you better, and I will I will give you the life and make you you know the best version of yourself that you can be, without ever realizing that the words coming in their mouth are not helpful and are as damaging in so many ways, and maybe in some more ways, because toxic masculinity, the Kevins, are hard to stomach, but you can put them in a box and ignore them. The Sams really get their hands dug into you. They're the type of people who feel like they lure you in. Whether you're a man or a woman, whomever the savior person is, is like luring you in in a way that makes you feel stupid when you realize what this is all about. I mean, the look on Allison's face was absolute just like disgust that she had been pulled into Sam's web. It's just like a double whammy because it just feels like, oh my God, not only am I in the same situation where someone is going to try to pull strings and dictate my life but i like walked into this trap thinking this guy looks so good right because it's such an anti-kevin the kevins don't want to make you a better person they just want you to look pretty and be quiet the sams are such sweet deception when you're coming out of that world because they want to they want to talk to you they want to engage you but they want to do so much more they want to change you though they're not accepting you the way you are that's just a starting point because they see potential in you but you still have to go through their regiment of of change in 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 their image so that you can quote unquote be more you know it goes back back and forth we said certainly there are plenty of women who play the same role who think oh i just have this you know raw piece of clay here and i'm just gonna you know make this guy polish him up and he's gonna be so much better he can be so much more we've seen that plenty of times where where the woman is needing to say oh would you just go back to school you you don't have to have this job you can you can be the manager you can be the boss like go to law school don't follow music music won't be able to provide for your family go to law school so you could be a man and provide for your family you know stuff like that happens all the time yeah yeah and then (laughs) but then you get that nasty aftertaste of like not only did this happen but i walked into it like i wanted this this looked this looked like paradise to me and especially in this setup too where we have a married woman and really let's just say a married person and they think they're leaving this one type and going for the other, 
And the other type is equally toxic. It's just so hard to see it. And that is the part where I'm like, wow, they are really like playing this out for people. Like at some point you have to be the strong one. You have to stop looking for a partner to fulfill you and stop looking to be saved in any form or fashion. You've got to do it. That final line, those four words, this should be enough. Man, I want to, that should be stitched on pillows across the land and, and give it out to men and women. Like, you should just be enough as you are. And any changes you want to make to better yourself should be because you want to make them, not because someone is telling you you should make them. And, you know, maybe their intentions are not bad and maybe they're just giving suggestions. Um, but if they're actively trying to mold you from who you are because you have, quote unquote, potential and they think they can help you realize it, people, that is a red flag that you should run from. I think it begs the question, what is a healthy relationship look like anymore because people would have thought oh maybe the sam situation does represent a healthy situation and i definitely think that at the end of the day i guess it's that part where you have to put it through your own filter you know you have to you can take suggestions all day long but you still have to you have to decide if this is what you want for you and who is the person you want standing next to you and it's different for everybody. It could be a best friend. It could be, you know, someone that that is not, you know, your romantic interest. And I think that that even kind of blows people's minds in a lot of ways. One day you're going to turn around and you realize I don't even recognize myself anymore. I, you know, I've just become this version that the that Sam wants me to be. Uh, or Samantha, you know, it doesn't have to be gendered. <laughs> and I don't even recognize who I am anymore because it can be so, so insidious because it's wrapped in a veneer of I'm doing it for you. I want you to be better for you. But is it really or is it just because you want them, you know, at the end of the day, you want them to be someone that you think is warrants you being with them? Uh, it's interesting. I, you know, one thing about Sam that I wanted to bring up because this is a pattern of his behavior now. He lashes out with her and he starts it off with the, the, you know, you don't know when to get out of your own way. Is that what he says? Or some, he says something like, you don't know when to get out of your way or when to help yourself, right? That comes after she does this whole line and dance to him about, I give up. I give up. I'm just going to run away with you. We can start over and be different people. And he takes that really badly. And I understand why he takes it really badly. My issues with these two people as a couple is they're not talking to each other. They're talking past each other. She's Allison is only talking is only thinking about Sam as an escape from her life with Kevin, not because she wants to be with Sam. Sam represents an out. Sam represents uh, uh, an escape from Kevin. And in this scene, it represents starting over, just giving up on this current life and just starting new. Well, if you're Sam, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear you're the consolation prize. And that's exactly how he takes it. So I get him being upset with it. But here's a pattern with Sam. Here's a pattern of behavior with Sam that we've seen now a couple of times. It's that hurt that he takes and then lashes it around at her. 
Like it's, it's what triggers him into exposing his inner thoughts and making them out loud, which I'm happy for because you get to see what he's really like, right? Like these thoughts that he keeps inside, he says, but it always comes after she says something to him that he deems hurtful. And in this case, I agree is a hurtful or at least a careless statement she makes to him, uh, where, where she's basically like saying, let's, I'll just be with you because I give up with this Kevin life. That's always what triggers him when he calls her broken in the episode before before uh it comes after she rejects him it comes after she makes this defense that she needs to break it off so she can work on her marriage with kevin it's only after that that he's like when did you become so broken you know and he really it like it, his face changes almost it's like a jekyll and high transformation it's a really interesting character uh aspect to sam um that I, I, hopefully in season two we either get more information about it or you know we we get to dive deep in, a little more into it have we seen the end of this dalliance or romance as it were i don't think we can really move backwards with them I, I don't think that there's ever going to be that fairy tale possibility that seemed to be there at the beginning um you know too many cards have been played and it's just too much i mean both of them have exposed that you know they're really not in love with each other they're in love with the idea of each other and that's just never going to be enough in a lot of ways it was my favorite scene in the episode because i think it expressed so much of what this show is about and i think for both of us the the being more the the idea that why am i not enough i i I definitely resonated for me i know it resonated for you and i think for a lot of people if they're being honest with themselves i think a lot of people are gonna feel that way why aren't i enough everyone's always trying to change me this way or that way but it does beg the question about how do you be encouraging to others how do you feel like you know you be a good supporter of other people and not come off like that and not you know not be maneuvering people so so i i don't even know how to say like controlling wise like there is something to having a support system i mean if you go with this idea then it's basically like everyone needs to go it alone no one saves anyone else everyone stand on your own two feet everyone judge your own behavior based on what you think you should be and that's it and that's not really how society works i mean we're all intertwined there's all a give and take i'm kind of wondering How do you be these independent people who have no care in the world what the other person thinks of them? There is a little bit of that, like, well, what do you think I should do kind of thing? And there should be able to be a healthy give and take that isn't making the other person feel like like you're trying to change them. But there's but there should be something there. I don't like the idea that everyone in the world has to be all by themselves. Otherwise, you know, you're just being a savior or you're doing, you know, you're trying to manipulate someone else. Like, I don't like that. There needs to be some healthy version of this. The advice I would give a friend if they came to me with the situation, or if I heard this, I think I would say, be with the person that wants to support you in in your improvements that you want to do, that you see that you need to make yourself. Whether it's, I want to lose weight, or I want to go back to school, or I want to quit smoking, or whatever it is, I want to get in shape. Every one of those sentences that I just said started with, I want, not he or she wants for me that i think that's the starting point is what do you want and surround yourself with the people that want to support you and help you and encourage you give you ideas give you give you tips and advice on the things that you want to do not that they want to do to you 
And, and, and I do understand that. It's just, you know, there's always going to be portions where there's like compromise and like a give and take kind of situation where you can want one thing. But if that doesn't work out with your partner, are you walking away from your partner every time you you sort of singularly in a vacuum make your own decisions and don't, you know, have any give and take with them. Like, that's the part where I just want an example of somebody out here, you know, where we get to see that. I, I want, I mean, I'm encouraging Valerie Armstrong. I hope that they meet somebody. I hope there's someone comes across their path where they do like model what we're talking about. How, how do you take what your hopes and dreams are and be supported, but not like ignore because we see Allison really become this vacuum decision maker and hurting people all around her, hurting Patty most especially in this episode and we see how her just tunnel vision of like this is what I want this is the decisions I've made not considering other people's feelings is, is not ideal if Sam had just said be with me choose me be with me together here let's let's build Bev's diner together and live our life together I think that's a whole different ball game not be more Allison it's not be with me instead of Kevin because I'm a step towards improvement. That's the wrong tack to take. Want to be with Allison Sam because she makes your life better, not because you're going to make her life better. That's the wrong tact to take, bro. And also not true. Like, if you're pursuing Allison, you should be pursuing Allison because she is going to make you happy. She is going to be an improvement to how your life is. Uh, and she's someone that you want and a light in your life that you want around you. Not because you think you can save her. No, that's for her to decide what you represent for her. You need to be with her because because your life you can't imagine it without her yeah i feel like neither of these two people say anything like that that's why no. I'm, I'm afraid that the ellison sam train has come to its final <laughs> depot everyone please exit the tram you open the door for it and i think we got to talk about it we we have allison getting kicked in the teeth here a bit by sam we have her being made to feel like camera meat by pete and kevin and and you know look pretty and don't talk a be jackie O. oh god can i tell you right there at that line when they said be jackie O," and he goes that means i get a maryland oh. i don't know why that of all comments made me like want to just just turn off the tv i swear because it was one of those moments where i was like of all the things that's what we're going to we're going to like bring more people into this dysfunctional situation like oh my god no yeah and it was oddly sexual for kevin too because of all of his flaws gross woman chaser has not actually been one of them so it was like oh so you really are that in like ah uh. you really are just a piece of shit all around like there really is just nothing redeeming about you that is gross trifecta we're talking about Allison as someone who is fighting against the system so far. But Allison is doing quite a bit of her own, the system herself. I mean, she's being a little, she's being more than a little bit of a manipulative person in this. And she's being kind of like a shitty person and kind of a shitty friend, I think, to Patty in this episode. I, I want to play two clips back to back for you, because I think when you hear them one after the other, it really paints an interesting picture of who Allison is, at least in this episode, and at least as it relates to Patty. What's the alternative? You always make fun of me for saying I hope, but... I remember once. No, but you're right. It's dangerous. I need to know. I need to know what Tammy's thinking. I need to know if she's still on to me. And how are you going to do that? 
Like, we need to know what's going on. We need to know what to expect. What happened last night cannot happen again. We need to be a, a step ahead. How are you gonna do that, Allison? <sighs> Next time you're hanging out, I want you to look in that little notebook that she always writes in and, and see what it says about me. I, Patty, I need your help, okay? I hate saying that, but when I'm alone, I just, I do things like marry Kevin. Hey, you and, you and Tammy are friends, right? Note, this is from early in the episode. That's from minute 16 in the episode. Note the use of friends again. Note the use of friends in that. Let's play this clip now, which comes at the very end of the episode. This comes from minute 38 in the episode. You understand if I, you know, didn't think it would drain the favor bag asking you to look in a friend's purse. Allison? You know. I know what? You know. Okay? You know that Tammy is not just some friend, and you know why you shouldn't have asked me to do that. Well, you never actually said anything, and I didn't want to just assume. Bullshit! You knew! And you framed Nick for me, not out of the kindness of your heart, but you did it so that when you asked me to betray Tammy, I'd owe you one. Okay, that is not true. And also, betray her is a little strong. You knew I wouldn't say no, not to you. You knew I wouldn't say no, not to you. Just cut right into my heart. Great line delivery by Mary. Man, I I just want to wrap Patty up here. She's so right. She is so right. And I'm so happy she's calling Allison on all of her bullshit right here. I I feel so horrible for Patty because she was such an armored person. You know, she's our little rolled up armadillo and she opened up to Allison throughout these last seven episodes. And to get to this point where she is just so raw and so vulnerable and immediately have Allison take advantage of her and use her, no regard to the consequences that it would have to her. And again, like, I mean, she says so plainly, you know, this is not just a friendship. You can see I'm in a relationship, the start of a relationship. Here you are wanting to ruin that for me. I feel for her. I worry about her because how is this person going to not just roll back up into armadillo ball I think you almost had to have the ending we had in this episode in order to sort of like burst that from happening, you know, because otherwise yeah. this these, this twosome goes right back into, you know, old habits. Uh, where this scene goes from there ends with them assuming those old roles. I'll just go back. I'll just get your beer and you can take your digs at me and it's all going to be whatever it is. And we just act like nothing in the last eight episodes have happened. That's kind of where it builds to. But see how, see the insidious nature, though, of Allison using the friend line. Well, you can, she's just a friend. You could go look at her back. She's just a friend. I didn't think it would drain the favor bank for you to go peek at a friend's thing. Allison isn't using that because she's like, she's coding. She's signaling, like, this is all you've said this is. I'm not doing anything wrong. I haven't broken any of the rules. I'm not asking you to betray the, the your girlfriend. This is just a friend. I'm your friend, you know, and I, I, I'm supposed to be your best friend right now so okay punch the pause button though we all have friends going into their purses and reading their private thoughts much less their work information that you know is private since when is this 
friend behavior. Forget the fact that, of course, this is not girlfriend, boyfriend behavior. But why would it be okay to go through your friend's things? Like, I guess I'm confused about what people's definition of friendship really is. I mean, that's such a lack of respect. And again, it, they have that one little second where Patty says, you know, you didn't, you haven't had friends, have you? Like, because this isn't how you treat friends. There's such a lack of respect for everyone, not just their feelings, but their personal belongings. You know, one of the things that we spent a lot of time at the beginning of the podcast talking about, beginning of the podcast, meaning like in early episodes one and two, was how Allison was trying to figure out how to talk to people with her limited toolbox of only having really dealt with Kevin and not being out in the world prior to the start of the series. Uh, and the mechanic kept coming up where she kept trying different tacks, right, to get through to him. This whole thing seemed like a, another version of that in a lot of ways. You're uh, you're right. Like, even if we're just friends, you're asking me to go spy on her. What? Well, and 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 Mike, I mean, you're a lawyer. You have confidential information. She is a police officer, a detective with confidential information. Do you think that this could cause not only just a problem for her, obviously, within the relationship? Let's pretend it's a friendship. But professionally, yeah, right. There is so no lines. She's it's it's like a person who has just learned the rules of like poker and yet has no idea of the finesse of the game. So is trying to like use like this like real like I'm your friend. I'm your bestest friend. And so you should be willing to do whatever is necessary to keep me out of vault water. See what, see what I did. You know, like I, we, we, we planted this shit in Nick's house so you could get off, you know, and you're clear now, but here I am and I've still got a problem. So you should be willing to do whatever. I'm going to call in all of the favors. She's just your friend. I'm a better friend. Like she's playing all of these really clunky friend manipulation games. Patty is right. She is this vulnerable ball of emotions as it relates to Tammy, as it relates to Allison. It's a fresh relationship with Tammy, but it's also a very fresh relationship with Allison. You know, they've been kind of walking around each other for years. But I go back to that sharing the burger on the on the front porch and then both sort of letting their guard down and saying, you know, I eat this burger here because, you know, this and that. And she's eating this burger because of Kurt. And and to go back and feel go back to that Sam feeling of being lured in Allison acting as if she is just this very safe person to come and be friends with. <laughs> and she's so not, you know, she so twists what friendship really is. This is a really bad look for her. And, and it's, it's more devastating than ever. Like she could have said like really shitty things to Sam. She, I mean, she calls Kevin a dick and I didn't blink an eye. I mean, she calls Kevin a dick in front of an entire restaurant and I kind of like, you didn't blink. I blinked. I was like, oh, wow. Well, I mean, I blinked, but like in like a fist pumpy kind of way, I was like proud of her, but like, that's like a bad thing to do. Like you call someone a dick out loud in a restaurant. But it didn't even matter. No one even heard it. No one responded to it. She's invisible. Going back to the whole, you know, it doesn't matter what she says. Who is she not invisible to? The only person she is 100% not been invisible to this entire series, Patty. Patty has been aware of Allison, we realize now, for years before maybe Alice, Patty was even visible to Allison. Allison has been visible to Patty. She's never been invisible to Patty. That's the imbalance here at the end. I mean, so I, I wanna I wanna move this along because these those two clips kind of reach a crescendo here because Patty I mean, after the emotional crest of 
you know, I wouldn't say no to you, wouldn't say no, not to you. You know, it, it escalates from there because Allison starts thinking out loud and starts speaking out loud. And I think she starts realizing for the first time, the only person she really has in her life, the only one that's really reliable in her life at this moment is Patty. Because Patty, even not wanting to hurt Tammy or betray whatever their relationship is, still does what Allison asks her to do. And so you get this clip right here. Hey, I don't want you around because you're a good accomplice. You, you raised me from the dead. And, like, after all this, you're going to leave. Without you, you're... She's so close to the edge there. And I love that little quiet, what What were you going to say uh, that Patty wants her to, she wants just to push her over there. She wants Allison to willingly come over the edge with her to take her hand. Uh, she's, uh, she's about five minutes too early for that, but she wants her to take her hand and come over the edge with her, you know, at Niagara Falls. And Allison can't do it. Not yet. Not there. And And she reverts and she says, we'll just be shitty to each other again like it used to be. Heartbreaking, but also a real crescendo threshold moment. My question for you, and the one that I've been wrestling with, I feel like the show did a great job of layering in Patty's feelings for Allison the whole series. I think going all the way back to the beginning, it's something you and I put one of the post-its we put up on the board right away. Has the show earned that, though, from Allison's standpoint? Has has she ever shown anything for Patty more than just a sisterhood kind of friendship with her? I don't think so. Like, I, if, if Patty was hoping for a romantic I love you in that, I think that that was not earned. She could have wanted an, an I love you in the standpoint of like, you're my best friend, that type of thing. Or like, you know, we, we need to stick together like, you know, sisters kind of feeling. All of those emotions seem right. Romantic emotions don't feel right. And and even I know people can maybe point to Allison putting her head on Patty's shoulder in the tub in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. But even that I find more to be platonic. Well, we need I'm, I mean, I'm an I'm an affectionate person. And so I need touch from people. And if you're in a situation where the only touch that you're getting is from this man who you are you know disgusted by, then for a lot of people, they turn to their children. You know, they're hugging on their kids. They're snuggling with their kids. They're they're getting that affection like that. So I don't really have an issue looking at Allison's holding hands, touching, putting your head on her shoulder as just more of like just that human kind of need for touch and not a romantic need. That's my read. I don't know if you're reading more romantic into that, that Allison has some feelings. I love that scene because I think it exemplified the imbalance of love that each of these two women have for each other right now. Allison could have said, I love you to Patty there as a sister or as a best friend, as a girlfriend in like a girlfriend kind of way. That's what that head on the shoulder will die alone together in the bathtub i've certainly never had a close girl best friend all of that is what i've been reading on allison's journey in this series which i have appreciated because patty's journey has been different it has been a a romantic journey where she her journey has been kind of opening herself up to learning about herself and admitting that to herself through Tammy, but through Tammy realizing what her feelings actually are for Allison. And that scene in the bathtub where Allison puts her head on 
on Patty's shoulder, and Patty has this frightened look, which drives her to Tammy's house to tell her that she's the one. I, I said it last. I said it during the episode last week. Was that was all in response to not knowing how to deal with Allison. So she's using Tammy as like a placeholder because she has to put these feelings somewhere and she's just too scared still. She knows that Allison doesn't love her the way she loves Allison. So if the show had gone romantic there, I would have been off put by it because I don't think they've done the work on the Allison side there. I think these two are still at different levels of love. Even at the end of the episode when they take each other's hands, I still think it's an imbalance. I think it's a friendship love versus a romantic love, which is interesting and I think is fodder for great stories in the season mm-hmm, two. For season two, for sure. That's how I felt. Like I was like, they can't they can't let this information out right now, whatever Allison's feelings really are, because we need season two to really build whatever those feelings might be. What do you take away from the fact that even after this fight, Patty comes back takes out her brother, smashes a bottle over his head. I want to point out for all the eagle-eyed fans that that noticed, the cut on Allison's hand is the same cut in the same location she had in episode one. Again, the black and the white, the the bookends of, of episode one to episode eight, she gets cut by the broken bottle here after being attacked by Neil in the same place where she smashed the bottle in episode one and cut her hand. Really great little detail. But that then they, that Patty and her grab hands together, the bloody hand, as a matter of fact, which is symbolic, probably all on its own sign of a blood pact, maybe that they've made together, or just I'll, I'll take you, you are enough for me. Maybe that's what Patty's saying by taking her bloodied hand. Why does Patty come back? Does she hear the shouting? Is she coming back to continue the conversation with Allison and not really realizing Neil's even there. I think they are, you know, eternally linked by these plans that they've made together. I think that even though they had this spat and they basically left it as like, you know, fine, we're going to go back to the way we were. That's so unrealistic. I mean, they are still mid investigation. They are still in the middle of this entire thing. So I think that Patty was coming around basically just to be like, no, no, man, like we can't do it this way. Like, because we're already linked. We're already in the mutual destruction territory here. We can't walk away from each other. Like the worst thing you want and going back to that mutual destruction conversation we had, the last thing you want is that partner to be on the outs with you. Things always have to be good with your mutual destruction partner because they have everything on you. <laughs> so things can't be ugly. You, you're going to want to work on patching that up right away. And so thankfully she comes back, you know, right away. But I really do think that is because of her complete commitment, but also she's in this. I mean, she has all of her dirty laundry, if you will, mixed in with Allison's. Let's talk about that final scene because there's still some stuff we have to talk about. We still have to talk about Patty and Tammy. We just talked about the fact that it was Nick. That's how we ended that last one that we were like, is it the mechanic dynamic? Is it the Nick? <laughs> We've got to talk about that. Yeah, tons of housekeeping uh, still from the sitcom plot and, and the gun shooting. But we're here. So let's talk about the end scene. Mike, I flipped my lid. I could not believe anything I was seeing. I rewound the last five, 10 minutes of the show, probably five to 10 times. I could not believe it. I was zooming in. I was like standing up next to the TV, like could, you know, is his hand on her neck? Like I'm just watching this over and over again. I was floored. 
it all felt wrong to me. Alice has a great line in this episode early on, right before she actually starts trying to manipulate Tammy. She says, it all feels off. Uh, you know, she's talking about how Tammy said, you know, don't leave town. But when she she has this dramatic uh, argument, loud argument, as it turned out, with Patty in the living room and enters the kitchen and we're in the sitcom world. I kind of stopped. I stopped and I said, why is this brightly lit? There's no one here. What's happening? And then that voice comes out of the linen closet. It was just mounting dread, even with the laugh track playing. And watch the scene again. The laugh track is there through the very beginnings parts of this yeah. scene. But it's like limping through that it's, scene. It's, like, it's, it's it slowing really down. Yeah. yeah, it's it slowing down. Traction. It, yeah, it's awkward. I mean, it's un- uncomfortable. That, that Neil would actually put his hand on her neck. I was shocked at everything here. I was shocked that Neil who admitted earlier on in the new Patty episode, I am a big guy and I am terrified of you. That was the first time he ever even acknowledged being a big guy and and he was scared of the new Patty character. This was the first time when he takes out his phone and steps to Allison. He steps to her. It is the first time ever Neil became a frightening character to me because he was using his size to intimidate her. As he's talking about, like, a jealous lover who's been jilted, uh, talking about, I never thought Kevin would come hide and seek for me again. I was trying to get over it. You know, uh, you know, Kevin's moving on from me, but I have a way to get back into his good graces. And he steps to her. Now, I am a large man myself. People don't step to me. This is not an experience I have. But being a large man, I am aware of my size in the world. And I am aware that if I step aggressively to someone, I am signaling to them, fear me. That is what that body language says. When I enter your personal space that way, Neil is signaling to Allison and she takes it as well as you possibly could take it without shitting yourself. But he is signaling to her, I am intimidating you right now. This room, this dynamic just changed. That made my blood curdle. When he grabs her and flips her around and she's bent over the thing, I got it to... Yeah, I I was very scared when she was in this dress and everything because she had been wearing jeans for 90% of this entire show. And so then to be wearing a dress in this scene and him turn her around like that, I was like, holy God, tell me this is not going to get sexual assault land. Like It had huge sexual assault vibe. It had huge sexual assault vibe. I was like, he's going to rape her. Then he turns around and she's then she's bent over and look at that scene again. How uncomfortable that is for her. She her back is bent. She's laying flat. He has her flat pinned on the island and he is choking her. Caroline, when he begins to choke her, he's not even trying to get for the phone. That's how this all starts, right? They get physical because he's trying to get the phone back from her. If that tur- it turns into whatever snaps inside of him turns into pure violence. He's choking her with his right hand. He's got her left hand which has the phone her left hand is up in the air holding the phone and he's just holding that hand by the wrist not because he's trying to get the phone he's not he's just holding he's pinning her hand up in the air to keep her from breaking the chokehold he's grunting at her and choking Mm -hmm. he's grunting and choking her it is so disturbing and so violent and it's in this bright colored fucking world it all felt so wrong and dirty and and really disturbing to watch 
They did such a good job of setting up that island actually early on, because if you remember, that's where they were making the chili. That's not actually like a flat island. That's a stovetop. And so additionally, he has her laying across burners, you know, and he's Mr. Fire. Everything about it just scared the hell out of me. I'm definitely the shorter girl in that whole scenario and very, very scary and very shocking to have this. Very like you shocking. Said, we're in the sitcom world. And just to have that that whiplash second of everything changes so fast, when Neil says, what the fuck, and he's laying on the ground, I'm so scared for these women. I'm, I'm so scared as to, like, what is the next step? Because they are adamant that, you know, he's not going to say anything to Kevin. And I'm thinking, besides death, what option do you have for this man? And, and you, we talked to Brian Howe about this, too. We were convinced that Pete was going to be the character of the three guys to cross over into the single cam world. When it's Neil, when she smashes him, it's so interesting that that's when they choose to flip it to the single cam uh, world is when Patty right. smashes Why him on the head. Why is it not when she starts choking her? Why is it when Patty hits him? Isn't that weird? It's it's weird, but I've been thinking about it a lot because there are there are edits and cuts there they could have made. So why? It's a deliberate choice through the choking, but there's no laugh track. I've watched it a lot of times. There's no laugh track through any part of that scene. I think it's to hammer home this idea of bad behavior in the sitcom world and what you can get away with when people have an impression of you. There is a very famous episode, and I've been talking about this with you. I talked, to, I mentioned it to Brian. I've been kind of obsessed about it since. There, every now and then, you get a sitcom episode where they do a very special episode, or it's it's not a sitcom episode at all. There is a famous one of "Give me a Give me a break," where the chief dies, and it's a very kind of serious and somber moment. But uh, there, there is an episode. There's an episode of Family ties where alex's best friend is killed and he has to go to therapy it's my favorite episode of family ties not a funny episode very heart-wrenching there's an episode of all in the family one of these groundbreaking sitcom shows about a grouchy husband and his his long-suffering wife we've mentioned archie and edith a bunch there's an episode of that episode it's called edith's 50th birthday they're planning a party next door for her at uh at the daughter's house and she's in the kitchen and a, and a man comes impersonating a police officer. And it turns out he's actually a sexual predator slash robber. And he basically threatens to rape Edith. It, it never happens, but he holds her basically hostage the entire episode and menaces her and threatens to physically and sexually assault her the entire episode. And it's devastating. And there is laugh track and there's, and this is a show that was taped in front of a live studio audience through the first scenes before the audience really understood what was happening where there's some like awkward laughter and you get the feeling of they don't know what's happening here but again it's this bright sitcom set it's the bunker's kitchen and it's rape and it's violence and it's edith the sweet sweet woman the sweetest maybe of all of the sitcom wives that have ever been being threatened in this kind of way with her life on the line it's so jarring and so disturbing this scene and, and having him choke her while holding her wrist and, and that, that really exaggerated way using his size and, and physically dominating her was so reminiscent of that for me. I think they kept it there for as long as they did purely to hammer home 
this is what can happen when we aren't being vigilant to how we treat each other. That's that's my best guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that there's a lot of conversation about Neil over in the Facebook group, and I know a lot of people are going to sit around all the way till season two wondering what was up with Neil this whole time. And I, I am looking forward to re- going back and watching the entire series and just paying attention to Neil in isolation because, man, I just... Woo, it just came out of nowhere. And I really don't know where these ladies are to go next. Like, I don't know what they're going to do with him. When he says, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. And it's so, it is in a completely different voice and register and everything. It's like, it's, oh, it's frightening. Because he was realized yeah. what a, what a Muppety voice he had before, you know? Yeah, it's no, yeah, it's not, it's not any like, what the hey? You know, it's none of that. Oh, no. It's, oh, no, 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 it's. it's it's a growly man voice. Everything is different. Everything is different now. Everything's changed. I d- and I don't know how they continue to move forward. I don't know what they do exactly. I don't know either. It's going to be interesting. I mean, they have a couple of ways. Obviously, killing him, you know, is is the obvious way. I can't see them doing that. So what do they do? I mean, there's an obvious leverage point here that if Allison and Patty say to Kevin, Neil attacked her. Kevin's going to believe the ladies over Neil, I think. I can't decide, though, that. I really thought about it. I thought about, like, especially when he was when she was turned around and we stayed in sitcom zone, I was really thinking, is Kevin going to come in the back door and see this? And this is going to be some sort of breaking point. So for it to be Patty, that was my first thought, is the the entire plan would be, we are going to tell Kevin and Pete that you attacked her. How will you possibly possibly defend yourself against that? I, I mean, I think that's almost the only way they have to go. The show's smart. It's laid the groundwork for where Kevin doesn't actually have such blind loyalty to Neil. Not the way Neil has had to Kevin, where it actually maybe turns out more like stalkerish, you know, obsession, given the inequalities of it. We have seen plenty of times with Kevin and Pete together and alone looking at Neil like, good God, this guy is a lot of he's a project. You know, there's an obvious world there, especially with Patty supporting it. But here's the thing, Mike, though. Even if they say that, though, but that doesn't keep him from saying the stuff about, yes, but this is what I overheard. And all they have to do is follow it up. You know, all they I mean, as we know now, Nick's still alive. So with some information, like they still can't let that information go out. It can't be a he said, she said. And who do you believe? Here's what I think happens. I don't think I think they tell Neil that they will tell Kevin he did. He attacked Allison. I don't think they actually tell Kevin that. I think that's the threat they hold over Neil. But I don't know if it's good enough. That's I think it is. You, you think that that will keep him from saying it? I mean, I just don't know. Well, remember, he already knows he's on the outs with Kevin. He's not going to do anything that's going to even worsen his position. Uh, attempted rape and choking of his wife is not going to help his standing, especially with Kevin still running for council. Another thread that we have not answered or resolved. <laughs> I mean, this everyday hero is running for office still. Predator neighbor is not going to go well. It's it, it from Kevin's point of view, from Kevin's self-centered and selfish point of view, believing Patty and Allison, if they tell him, makes sense over believing Neil and the threat to Neil. Don't you say a fucking word or else we're going to go with our story. I'm dating the police detective and Kevin's going to believe us anyway. 
if you go back to the whole spiel about the entire system is rigged for the Kevins and the Pete's and the Neils of the world, you're painting a picture where the system is leans back towards the women and has them say, oh, no, we have all the cards. We've got Tammy. We've got Kevin in our pocket and all stuff when that's not the way the story's been told. It's always been told that the Kevins and the Neils and the Pete's get away with it. I don't know. I don't know if that can actually work. Now, here's the thing. That's the excitement for season two. And obviously, let's get back over to the Nick situation because we have that dangling thread for season two. Were you surprised that they went with the twist, pulled the plug, oh, and but he's actually still alive? I was because, first of all, that makes his aunt seem so crazy. <laughs> like, like the, like they're in a situation where they actually pulled the plug on him, but he was still like fully able to stay alive. Like, good lord! I mean, what a mess this whole this whole town is across the board. And the aunt was like, uh, "Just like Nick, get getting around things like pulling the plug." And you're like, "What? This is crazy." K sir fucking raw. I've never yeah. heard anyone yeah. say that in that. I've never heard anyone use it that way and then add that that uh, f word flourish to it. Oh my gosh. Well, so we we had Nick on the table. You know, we I we didn't see the twist of keeping him alive like this. So I mean, I think we knew that it was too simple to just say, okay, it's just Nick, and that's it. That's because it really thing. didn't make sense for anyone else, right? I think we 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 talked Me- ourselves mechanic dynamic and everything else. Yes, as, as, <laughs> as much fun as it was to say mechanic dynamic didn't really make sense as a culprit. It really had to be Nick or Sam. They were the only two. Nick being alive again, you don't hire you know Robin Lord Taylor to do a couple things. So I don't think we've seen the last of Nick. I like that you leave him a little a little bit shaky, though. Like, I mean, the man's been on life support. So depending on how you want to write season two, depending on, I don't even know, what notes you get from the network or what, what the actor can commit to, you can have him come in and out of a coma. You can have him be this, like, wavering little part that, like, maybe he's going to burst in on the scene, but maybe he dies. We don't know. I really enjoyed Allison saying, uh, what happens when he says, this broad over here hired me to kill her husband and... <laughs> And, Ta- and Patty seizes on, oh, honey, you're not a broad. I thought that was very funny. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. A little levity in a, in a in an otherwise very tense episode. It definitely was. No, I, I agree. Can I ask you if you Please. were as bothered by this as I was? Okay, what? Fingerprints. Why weren't they uh, wearing fucking gloves in his apartment? I had all the issues. I don't, I understand for, for Annie Murphy to look cute. They need to put the hat on in a certain way there, but anyone else would tuck their hair up in the hat. You're supposed to be trying to look like no one could tell who you were, right? In some way. So you would like put your hair up in the hat, right? And that, so that, so that your hair doesn't fall all over. In case you don't know, Mike, we lose 75 to 100 hairs a day. That's for sure. She's leaving hair all over that place. But you're right. Fingerprints galore. And that was like a dirty window and everything. So there's handprints all over that thing. This is a mess. This entire She's touched all of their clothes, the clothes, all of the bottles. Everyone, anyone who's ever watched five minutes of a crime procedural knows bottles are the number one thing. Bottles and glasses, the number one thing to leave your fingerprints on. And don't even children know that one goes through the window and then goes over and unlocks the door for the other one? You don't both go through the window. That's not a thing. Considering that they end up leaving (laughs) through the door later on right afterwards. Yes. That's not a thing. And I understand we had the drugstore plastic bag and that was the entire part to tie back to the pharmacy and everything. Oh, I like that they planted on Nick. 
But their handprints are all over the place. Yes, but their their like, fingerprints oh. are literally all over everything. I like the plan, but they could have done some basic, basic cover your ass. Unless they're going to go with a plot line where maybe they what they were both having sex with Nick, and that's why all of their fingerprints are found all oh over. I don't know how else. <laughs> right, that's the only way you can justify oh, why yeah, your yeah. DNA and fingerprints are found all over the place. I, I think that the the amount of questions that would be asked, it, it would not matter what kind of sexcapade story you made up. I think you're in trouble for sure. And it's winter time. Wearing gloves is not even weird. They could just be wearing winter gloves. It's not that big of a deal. I agree with everyone on Facebook and Twitter and everyone who's just like slapping themselves in the forehead like why? I don't when she drops the bottle in the basement. Oh my god. Also, I'd be a way better hider under the stairs. I would not be like 3 quarters of the way standing up under the stairs. I would be tucked in a ball. After they hear the bottle smash and Patty's at the door with the aunt. The aunt gives a face and she says a couple of things after that point about mm-hmm. not wanting to be tied up in whatever the fuck Nick was tied up into. She knew Patty was there for some nefarious reasons, right? She didn't jog. She didn't jog over there to check on her in her street clothes. She knows that Patty is her dealer. And so, and she knows she was giving the pills to Nick. Like she's aware of the, of the chain here. So yeah, you'd be looking at Patty like, uh, although I do give Patty props for going and ringing the doorbell. The aunt is putting it together. They know, I mean, Patty's talking about covering up whatever they might find in the basement from whence we just heard suspicious noises uh oh that'll be a treat and uh, luckily dan is like listen i don't give it i i what he he's getting whatever's coming to him and i want nothing to do with it can i also mention one more thing they stick the prescription bottle with the pills in the bag Hmm. The illegal pill bottle from the truck driver. Why yes. Wouldn't you that would have that man's name on it? Why wouldn't you transfer the pills into a Ziploc bag like drug dealers might have? Yeah. Why would they be in a prescription bottle from a man that you know is probably, you know, they're gonna contact him and he's gonna say he got smacked in the head behind a convenience store. While making a in drug deal with a, with a pretty little blonde girl. This is right. all bad. This yeah. is all bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think it's troubling. I mean, so on its face, we hear uh, uh, Kevin of all people tells Allison that Tammy called and said they tied up the dealer investigation with the warrant and and checking out Nick's place. So it seems like that is done and done. But while Patty is out buying cigarettes, Tammy gets a visit from Ghost of Future Past, Kurt who lays some damaging seeds uh, mm-hmm. inside of Patty's head. And I love this little pissing contest because I love that they both instinctually know, uh, well, I'm sure Tammy very much knows who Kurt is. And Kurt is uh, is wise enough to pick up, I think, the vibe here. And when Tammy says she seems happier than she's been in years, man, mm-hmm. it, was the, it was the most I've really liked Tammy, the character. The little, like, dick measuring contest over, you know, over Patty. I thought it was kind of fantastic. I had really mixed feelings about Tammy in this one. Because when we start off that whole scene, they're in her shop and she's like, who's the sucker who buys product, you know, 
here at the at the shop and everything. Like she's so demeaning about Patty's career and everything. It's the so you could be so you could be so much more. It's very that. It it was hurting my heart and and Patty. It wasn't going over her head. I mean, she kept like you know side eyeing her and being like, I was hoping for some walk ins and you know being like, God, you're being a dick, you know. And then she made it clear that she would like to go to the campaign party. And Tammy's like, eh, not doing that. Just like squelches plans, regardless of if that makes sense. Hello, this is a young relationship. I mean, be more like just like controlling and just be like, nope, not doing that. Doing something else. Like, boo, Tammy. Isn't that isn't that perfect though to show that Kevin's don't come in a gender? They come in all shapes, sizes, and genders for sure. They absolutely do. I was really turned off by the judgy, even even more so than who buys the product in a salon. Which, by the way, I have bought product in a salon before. <laughs> <laughs> and I used it for years and I was very happy with it because it was like a Paul Mitchell product that I couldn't find in like normal stores. And so it was just easy when I would get my hair cut. I would buy like every like, every, like six mm-hmm. months. It was like a big Jagunda shampoo bottle that I would just get and I would use it. So fuck you, Tammy. I buy product in the store. What Paul Mitchell product do you, it was, you use? It was a green tea shampoo and it was fantastic oh. for my scalp and I really enjoyed it. Was it tea tree? It was tea tree, yes. I always called tea it green tree. tea. It shampoo, was a green, yeah. it was a big green bottle. So I, in my yeah. head I called it green tea. tea I tree, know the smell of that oh, I was a big fan mm-hmm. of it. I found it very, I, I it really it's very improved, tingly, very tingly, and I, I just really enjoyed it for my scalp. You're right that that particular product is, you know, Paul Mitchell. If you want the real thing, because here's the deal: when it's sold outside of a salon, it says on the packaging, "If this is sold outside the salon, we cannot guarantee this is really the product." Yeah, so, so fuck you, yeah, you judgy Tammy. bitch. Yeah, <laughs> I buy Tammy. product at my salon, so there you go. <laughs> But also just not nice. Like, who goes into someone's place of business and is like, who buys your crap? Like, oh. Well, she says that, but then she, like, does, like, the dust test. She says, well, I guess I guess no I one. No, That is such what? a mother-in-law, like, swipe the finger along the shelf. I was like, oh, I'm outraged. She's obviously cleaning. Cut it out. But beyond all of that, I was more turned off with the fact that she's like, you didn't even have any customers today, you loser. We could have gone bowling. That that was the thing that really pissed me off in the scene. It wasn't even the, the product and that no one buys the product. It was, why are we even here? Why are you even, why are you even open? You didn't even have any customers today. Essentially saying loser at the end of that. What? It's, it's, it's Sam all over again. It's, it's Tammy acting like she's this white knight savior for Patty, the new lesbian. Like that's what it feels like. No, thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a super no thank you. Can I give you a theory I have? And and, okay. and, and Tammy bites herself in the ass here, I think, a bit. When Patty kind of excitedly says, you know, I've been getting these updates from the campaign rally from Allison. Like, it sounds like something like some real like shit show we should go check out. And Pammy's like, no, I don't want to go. And she says, it's Allison that I don't want to go. I don't get a good vibe from her. I don't like it. For, I don't like that. Like, you know, this is like this woman's best friend maybe her only other girlfriend she ever talks about, maybe her only other friend she talks about besides her brother. Why would you say that? And it's my theory, her taking, throwing shade at Allison is actually what convinces Patty to check her notebook. I don't think Patty's going to do it until that moment. I don't think she's going to, quote unquote, betray Tammy and look in her police notebook until she throws shade at Allison. 
Yeah. Once there's that snide remark, it pokes the bear, quite literally. And, and how would she really know? Though she does have an inkling because she's already said it out loud about how Patty feels about Allison. And doesn't this go back to the Sam mother-in-law in-law comment where it's one thing for Patty mm-hmm. to say something like, oh God, my neighbor friend just showed up at this bar. Oh God. It's another thing for you to pile on and just try to say something snotty about her. Like, you can't do that. Like, not cool. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And that's not the first time we've heard her say something about Allison. After the scene in a bar where Patty comes back and she's been in a bad, now she's in a bad mood after her bathroom conference with Allison. The next time that comes up, Tammy says to Patty, what about your nosy ass neighbor? Allison. Even that qualifier is like, you don't know Allison. Mm-hmm. You you know one isolated incident. You don't even know what the context of it was. You just know you you seemed like you're having a good time. You went to the bathroom with her. You came back. You were in a bad mood. For you to say you're no, you know, like the nosy ass neighbor kind of thing. Like Tammy is not hiding her feelings at all, but she's like asserting her dominance. Cause it, I think it's what I really do think it's what causes Patty ultimately to go check her notebook. I don't think she's going to do it up until that point. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, from the standpoint of, of manipulation and sort of different techniques people use, pulling you away from your family, which would be Neil and talking shit about Neil, which Tammy does, pulling you away from someone who seems like a friend and talking shit about her. Like, there's no one in Patty's life thus far that Tammy's been complimentary about. So there's that's a little angle to take where, you know, I'm the only good one. You need to come run to me. You can't run to everyone else because they're all bad people. It sounds very Sam-like. It's a whole it's a whole type of Kevin, if you will. Yeah, it's that other side of of toxic I don't want to say masculinity, but, to, you know, to, like like savior. I'm an improvement. Being with me is an improvement over whatever your shitty you life is before you need to abandon the rest of your life. I want to talk a little bit about Kevin because Kevin is in a weird place in this episode and is acting as single camera as I think at this point the show is willing to allow him to act without switching to the single cam world. Uh, were you surprised at how deflated and and then his hair, I think, is a little bit of a mood ring. I mean, it's limp and it's lifeless <laughs> at the beginning of the episode where his laugh it's button is on the front. down on his head at one point instead of our floppy wig we normally get. It's completely flat to his head like he just came out of the rain and and which matches his mood. Because remember, when he then he gets, you know, mm-hmm. his second wind and it's all gelled back up again. His pompadour comes back. Were you surprised that the show picked up in the sitcom world without resetting in in a way that we hadn't seen before there were consequences from the last episode that carried over in the sitcom world to this episode in a way we had never experienced before there's another aspect to kevin in this episode where neil and allison are actively trying to get him to stop this campaign and to move on the way kevin always seems to move on with his life plans and he doesn't, and he's sticking with it. That seemed important to me. He acknowledges that they're trying to get him to move on, and he says, no, 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 I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. I was I was kind of surprised by that. It seemed very anti-sitcom. It definitely seemed like the, the type of thing where in every other scenario, he would just have a new antic of the week next week. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, in terms of consequences, mixed bag. Consequences in that we actually see them have to follow through and, like, go down to the police station. But thus far, no consequences for an actual shooting in the house, which I did want to mention. And, Mike, I know this is small and maybe kind of weird, but... 
assuming Nick was shot in the house, right? Why there's no police tape or anything. Blood or damage or anything anywhere. I don't know why that bothers me. I know that sounds stupid, but there's something about the fact that the home itself doesn't look like a crime scene that actually makes me feel like consequences be damned here. Like there really aren't any because we would have seen that feel like the duct tape on the coffee table. You know, there was no remnants in their house that this actually happened. Right. It felt odd to me and off. It, it definitely. But again, I think the show is making an intentional choice there. You have Tammy's partner saying at the beginning of the episode, like, we understand why you did what you did and we support mm-hmm. you, essentially. It, you know, it's uh, there are plenty of places in this country where stand your ground and especially home home uh, invasion laws. Home invasion laws are like a thing, like not in New York. You, do you guys don't have that? Okay, because we definitely do. I, I mean, honestly, I don't know if New York. I know New. I don't know if New York does uh, or does not. I know Florida certainly does. I know Texas definitely does. Yeah, we are welcome to shoot anyone that comes into our house. Um, but the aggressive way in which the partner or Tammy's partner like actively says like you're not going to be in any trouble for this. Like we've got your back. Like we know the score. This is like a desperate low life, probably for drugs kind of thing. But then we nailed it, Caroline, pointing out that the cops during the Mighty Moo eat off with Sean Avery would come back to play. It came back to play. They're honoring. They're donating to Kevin's campaign here. They're mm-hmm. giving him a completely free ride. He, She says it to Sam. He shot someone, Sam, in our home, and they don't give a shit. It, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. There's, there really are no repercussions. You know, besides him feeling like he should do something else, there's no, like... You know, like we said, there's not police like buzzing around the house. There's not like there's some questions, but they're not really that big of a deal. They just go on with their lives the next day. No, they were much more interested. They were much more concerned about Allison than they were about Kevin as far as the investigation goes, which says which says everything you need to know to support her claim that the system is designed for people like Kevin and Pete and Neil. She has to go through bare bulb interrogation with two cops in her face for hours answering questions about what kevin was doing during the day kevin gets feted kevin kevin gets his campaign slogan as an everyday hero from the cop it says everything you need to know everything you need to know <laughs> about this world so crazy that it's allison so and allison and patty are fighting uh fighting in and fighting against just to circle back real quick when patty who's supposed to be getting cigarettes leaves tammy alone she has that interaction with kurt uh, tammy starts looking around the same way Patty was looking at Tammy's notebook, which we know led to her snooping in it. Tammy's looking around the salon where she's standing there alone because Patty's not coming back. She's at Kevin's house uh, waiting for Allison, not coming back to the salon. Is the geisha book at the salon? What is Patty going to find? What is Tammy going to find if she starts looking around and snooping around? I think we saw the geisha book back at... Um, Patty's house so I don't know if it goes with her day to day or what but we definitely saw Tammy pick it up in off of her coffee table but prior to that I had been at the salon in her drawer because when the, the woman comes to settle up on the cash that had been fronted for her the book is there at the salon so I don't know what is she going to find there has to be probably some evidence of her drug trade there is my guess because not anticipating someone going through her stuff, she probably hasn't completely covered her tracks. Why are you open on a day when you have no customers? That question becomes, you know, again, insidious. Like, why are we here? Like, who are you planning on stopping by here? Even the question of when did business fall off? 
That was a good one to ask. I, she didn't have a good answer. She was just like, recently. <laughs> I mean, there, there really wasn't anything there. Certainly not time to when the drugs at Fiori's dr- dried up. <laughs> Certainly not related to that. Exactly. I mean, where's the poor librarian getting her hair cut, though? That's got I don't know. Goes. Where's anyone getting up? The, the aunt's hair looked like crap. So who knows? No one's caring about hair these days. No one's ca- no, no one's caring about the hair. And I mean, where are they buying their product if they're not going to Patty Salon? That's what I want to know. They're just not. They're just not. They're letting it all go. We have a couple of great interviews coming up here. We've talked for a long time, but now we're going to ask you to stick around a little bit longer. We have a great interview with Eric Peterson, who plays Kevin McRoberts. And we have a great interview with Brian Howe, who plays Pete McRoberts. Uh, yeah, so stick around for those now, and then we're going to come back, and we are going to wrap up this season finale episode. Joining us tonight on Kevin Can Podcast himself, we have the actor who has brought Kevin McRoberts to life, that everyday hero, Eric Peterson, is joining <laughs> us. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and chatting with you guys. I've been following your podcast, and uh, you guys have been breaking down the show in such an amazing thoughtful considered way and uh i know that a few of us on the show have been have been listening and we <laughs> we we greatly appreciate your analysis uh, it's so funny you know caroline and i uh, especially caroline because she does a lot of the editing or almost all of the editing and so every every podcast we do it's always all right 45 minutes in out get it done <laughs> i say mike don't you dare talk longer than 45 minutes <laughs> and you know right. the first four episodes are of, of, of the show or so we were able to do that 45 50 minutes then it got the five and six. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, Caroline, we may need about 90 minutes <laughs> to talk about this one. I think so, episode yeah. seven was a full two hours, and I was like, yeah. oh, Mike, I'm shaking on this edit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so much yeah. to talk about, though. Uh, and there is so much to talk about. And we are at the end of the season. This is part of our episode eight coverage. But if we can take a second, I want to jump in the Wayback Machine. How did you get cast for the show? Did you have any idea what it was going to look like? Did you think you were auditioning for a sitcom? Like, what was that whole process like for you? So basically, um, in I guess it was the, technically the pilot season of 2020. So this was like January 2020. I got the script from my agents and managers, pretty much like any other script that I would get from them. You know, it was pilot season, so they were starting to come in. Um, and they were like, here's this new show. It's called Kevin Can F Himself, and it's to play Kevin. And I was like, all right, that sounds awesome. <laughs> the title is uh, pretty intense. Let's let's see what this is about. And then I read the script, and I was like, wow, this is such a smart, brilliant idea that I'm amazed that no one has thought about before. And I feel like even in the original pilot script, you could see those transitions and you could sort of feel what they were going to be. It wasn't, I will say the first time that we actually saw it, it hit me even harder and in a better way. But I I could tell sort of what the general idea of the show was. So I went in for uh, a first sort of meeting audition with uh, Val and Craig and Lynn Shelton was um, still with us at that point. And so she was there and the casting director, Felicia Fasano. And before I even did any of the scenes, we just started talking about it. And one of the first questions that I had with Val was, are we making a show? And I don't know if I said assuming that that I was already on it. I was like, are we making a show that is like really poking fun and parodying sitcoms or and she stopped me right there. She was like, no, no, no. I love sitcoms. I love multicam sitcoms. 
what we're trying to do is like really take the air out of them, but we're not trying to like destroy them or really do like a tongue in cheek reference of them. So for me, that was exciting because I, I do have a lot of multicam experience and it is an art form that I truly love. And so I, I was like, I don't know that I wanted to be on a show that was going to be like really like sitcoms suck and let's make a terrible sitcom about, you know, and right. th- that was not something that was interesting to me. But the idea of making like a really standalone sitcom that would be able to air on CBS right now and then see the other side of it seemed really exciting. And so we did a few auditions and it went well. They seemed to be liking me. And I went to a point where I was testing for the show and there were still some casting decisions to be made from the role of Allison. And so they, it seemed to get down to me and they were like, we like you, but we're still not sure about who we're going to cast as Allison. So just sort of sit tight. And so then there was like about a month of me kind of just like waiting to hear. And then they released that they had cast Annie and it was like, oh my God, she's perfect for this. This is what a great next step for her. This is going to be awesome. So then we went in for a chemistry read with Annie and it went well and it seemed to be working out between the two of us and then uh, got the call that I got it. So it was it was very exciting because, as I said, having done a lot of sitcoms, this seemed to be such a cool project that was smarter than a lot of the stuff that, you know, I maybe have gone in for before, but it was still getting to do some of that physical comedy, good, broad, old school kind of sitcom stuff that I, I think that I, I can do pretty well, um, but getting to have a smarter angle from it. So then how did you prepare for this role once you actually landed it? Did I mean, did you draw on those classic sitcom husbands? Because, yeah. boy, if you are not Ralph Cramden, I do not know who you are. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I will say that Jackie Gleason is like, he's one of my heroes. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Honeymooners fan. And so I have always said that the way that I pictured Kevin was an amalgamation of Ralph Cramden and Peter Griffin. If those two men were somehow, you know, put together in one human form, it would be Kevin McRoberts. I'm pretty sure that's one of the seals in Revelations that when it gets broken, <laughs> seas begin oh, to get no. swallowed up. Yes. Peter, Peter like, and, oh, and, no, uh, they've Kevin. combined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and uh, yes, so I would say that definitely drawing on classic sitcoms was a huge part of it, especially there's a rhythm to uh, that I sort of use when I'm speaking as Kevin that is directly ripped off from Jackie Gleason in The Honeymooners of just the sort of this. And then you're going to sort of say this, you know, that I, I always, when I was working with the dialect coach and stuff, I would say, I really, obviously the dialect needs to be right and correct. But I was like, but there is like a rhythm that I hear for Kevin that has this sort of like, it goes up to here and then it comes down, which, you know, you could see like Fred Flintstone did it, which was obviously a ripoff of Jackie Gleason. So that was a big part of drawing from the past that I wanted to try to put into the character. Hey, Archie Bunker has that though too, you know, where they fill the space with the glissando, you know, what are you doing here? You know, like it's always kind of like you're just filling that gap because it's the like thing in the room. Yeah, it's like that musicality of the lines that make it just a little bit more heightened and a little more broad. And also, as you just said, about filling the room, that's something that I tried to do not only vocally, but also like physically. I always tried to stand like with my feet pretty far apart, very sort of like superhero like in a way. But he obviously does not have the physique of <laughs> of a superhero, but he like kind of thinks that way, you know, very chest out or or, or groin out, you know, very just like Ugh, I, everyday hero, a very everyday hero. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
<laughs> I have got to say, this is just between me and you, Eric. No one else can know this, but I am big into hair. And so your hair, the way that you get that pompadour going, but then you also have that floppiness that goes on with it. I uh-huh. am like magnetized by this. So I'm wondering like, you know, how much of just your look and, and just that overall, you know, that floppy hair stuff goes into the personality here. Yeah. You know, it's funny that I, I will say that I think that the hair journey of Kevin, it started out, you know, we definitely, that is pretty close to sort of how I do my regular hair when it's that length, you know, but I definitely like sort of pushed it up a little extra. And I think that especially when doing a lot of the more physical madcap kind of stuff, it really does kind of get a life of its own. <laughs> I will say if, if you if you went back and looked at a lot of the things that I've done since, you know, since being in college as an actor, my hair has uh, featured prominently. It, it sort of is a it's a, a large living organism on top of my head. I, I will say this. I, I'm very happy to have have all of my hair. And, you know, it's it, it really uh, it adds something to uh, to everything I do. I think it should be in the credits. It's like Eric Peterson and his hair and his hair. Eric's hair as Kevin's hair. <laughs> yeah. oh, yes. Yes. That's good. That's good. Uh, if we have time at the end, we're going to be doing some school of rock and nostalgia talk. Sure. So, uh, and so we can get back to your hair there, too. And manic energy. <laughs> um, you mentioned the dialect coach and we've we've seen a bunch of interviews, especially with Allison and Mary uh, about accent and picking up the accent. What kind of challenge was that for you? Is it something that you felt that you really nailed? Have you had a lot of flack for it or encouragement? Because people from Boston are very particular about their yeah, accents. They are, they are yeah. very particular about it. I've always said that going in, the one worry that I had with the accent, I was like, I just, I, I want it to be great. But I, the main thing I don't want to have happen is I don't want to end up on like a YouTube supercut of bad Boston accents. Because when I was learning the Boston accent, I found plenty of those on YouTube. So I, I will say I I feel pretty proud of how I did my Boston accent. And I feel like I've had feedback from a lot of friends who are native to the area and they've said very good things. So that's that's was encouraging to me. I loved doing that accent. I love doing accents in general. Boston was not one that I had any experience with. I never used it or had to use it in anything, but it was really fun. And one of the things that I think helped was Charlotte, who was our our dialect coach, was awesome and was on set every day. But I also, while we were filming, we were filming in a little town called Randolph, Massachusetts, which is like just about like 20 minutes south of Boston proper. Um, And I was living in a little town called Situate, Massachusetts, which is right on the ocean. It's this tiny little fishing village. That was spectacular. We had the best time, but it was really that like real thick New Englander who at, at every at the Seven Eleven, at the Dunkins, at the pizza shop, everywhere we went was so thick with that true, true Boston accent. So it was really it was honestly very helpful to sort of be immersed in it daily. <laughs> It's, it's like how people it's like used Spanish to, immersion, yeah. yeah. Yes. Or like how people used to quit smoking in the eighties with like the tape cassettes as they went to sleep. Yes, like, yes. Subliminal. You, you, you just go to sleep listening to Boston yes. baseball game commentary. You totally. Know? Oh my gosh. Totally. That's too funny. Well, Eric, we manage a Facebook group called Kevin Can F Himself Fans, and we have a question from Karen from there. She said, you do such a brilliant job of portraying Kevin. What do you do to get into such an animated and cluelessly unlikable character? 
That's I know, great... like, okay, Karen. <laughs> no, uh, you know, Karen, I appreciate that. That's fair. That's fair. I say to get into character, it really is just the writing is really great. And once you have good momentum as a character, like Kevin always has a place that he's trying to get to, you know, like there's always some scheme that he has to like get this or he has to make the chili or he has to, you know, win the election. So he has very strong goals and objectives. And so as an actor, it makes it very easy to sort of play with momentum and movement and energy towards something. So I think finding, you know, like getting into character is really all in the writing. So, uh, and in regards to him being clueless, I think that's a big part of who he is, is that like he has such blind enthusiasm and confidence in his own thoughts and, and objectives and what he's trying to do and say, but he has no basis to have that confidence, but he's sort of unaware of that. So, and, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, this is in no way being self-deprecating. I know what my face looks like and it gives off a pretty like, <laughs> like clueless uh, look. And that's something that I figured out pretty early in my career that I could play a, a pretty dumb <laughs> dumb clueless guy pretty well without doing too much I, I don't think that in life i am a dumb clueless guy but my face uh is able to sort of sort of give off that vibe pretty easily so uh, that that's my answer <laughs> you know what i would have to say that you know i know you've listened to the podcast and at the beginning when we were first describing you i was like i don't want to say anything about eric's face because he's a real human and i don't want to like talk about kevin's face as if eric's not a real man in the world and so i was trying to be like but here's the thing about that i'm glad that we talked about it in that way because when we come upon episode seven and you get serious when there is the intruder yeah. your face changes completely and you don't have that look on it anymore and i'm like wait, wait, wait. so eric as a human is completely capable of looking like a guy i would trust and 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 want to be protected by so you are doing a fantastic job with kevin because you. you sold it i was like that might be eric's face i'm not sure you know what that's i would say that that is true the look that i have in the bedroom scene when you know uh saying you know i'm gonna protect the family that is that's my normal look. And then once I'm Kevin, I just sort of relax all of the muscles below my cheeks. And so everything just sort of hangs and it just makes like my a happy stroke. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly oh that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there is a lot of focus. I'm glad that we brought up episode seven and the end there, because there's been a lot of focus about Alice and, and Patty and their journey over the course of the season coming together in their own personal arc. Certainly people are going to be talking about Neil after tonight's finale. But I yeah. think Kevin also really had an arc too i mean i how do you look at kevin's journey when you think about episode one opens with him playing beer pong in the living room to episode seven that ends with him having this realization to protect the family and then actually shooting someone and the start of episode eight while it's sitcom lighting you know you, you enter the police station and it's very forlorn and very serious and your laugh button is broken yeah. is there a subtle change in kevin that you saw over the course of the season yeah, what I tried to do was one of the, and I know you guys are aware of this, one of the main like tropes of a sitcom in general is that characters don't change. And that's why they're comfortable and familiar. And that's why we like them. You know, we always know how Kramer is going to react, even though we don't know what situation he'll be in. We always know he's going to have that Kramer energy, right? And so. I did want that to be true about Kevin. So it was sort of important for me that he'd not change too much. 
But in light of what our show is actually doing, and it is breaking form and it's breaking classic ideas of what how things should look and be, is I tried to put little moments throughout the show of like his losing a grip on that control. You know, I always think of him as having sort of a death grip on the status quo, right? He wants nothing to change for himself, for the world, but mainly for himself. (laughs) And so I I, I think I wanted him to not change too much, but there definitely are moments that you can see that he's like, why is Allison talking back to me or not like just going right along with what I suggested from the get, you know? And so I, I think that Kevin is changing slightly not much but slightly he is having a a little realization that things around him are changing and that he may have to sort of roll with that but it's not anything close to obviously the the realization and the changes that are happening for allison and 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 mary hollis's character Right. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I, that's a great point, though, because uh, a classic aspect of sitcom, especially the the couple sitcom, is yeah. every week it resets completely. Totally. As if yep. whatever happened last week never happened. I mean, episode eight, the sitcom portion literally picks up in the aftermath. Like, you know, you can, you can see where Kevin, like, waking up in the real world is like, what is happening here? I should be right. having some antics in the, you know, what happened to Jenny McCarthy tank top? Like, <laughs> right. I, should be, I should be jamming right now. Not <laughs> yeah. Well, I think... I think it's kind of like it was, you know, when you'd have that rare episode of yeah. Friends or something like that, that would be like to be continued. And right. it was like, what? We're spanning over two half hours. That's insanity. This is a very special episode. Exactly. Of, of Kevin's life. Yeah. When you were putting the character together, and this is, again, going back to the beginning, was there like backstory given to you? Did you sit in with Valerie and work on Kevin or is that not necessary because of the sitcom aspect to it? Uh, yeah, we didn't do a ton of backstory. I mean, we definitely talked about a general idea of how Kevin and Allison would have met and that he was charming to her at the beginning, but we didn't do a ton of backstory on it. I think, again, because of we, we, try, we tried to really kind of have that sitcom-y feel where you don't, it's almost not really that important. I, I understand, like, I, Eric, can take a step back and see why the audience would be like, no, it's incredibly important. Why don't we know why Allison is with this guy? But in a sitcom world, you don't ever really know that. You don't ever really explore that. And so, you know, we didn't do a, a ton of backstory on Kevin. It was sort of, he was a, a force that was, in a way, always there. So, Eric, we've actually gotten to see a little compassionate side of Kevin. And we talked about this a lot in the podcast where I was like, listen, I feel like the show is like kind of signaling to us that maybe maybe Kevin is actually a better guy than we think. So <laughs> do you think there is a little crack in the sitcom world here? Is, is it going to get a little wider if we get season two, which we're, of course, crossing our fingers? Yes, me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, somebody asked when we did um, the Tribeca Film Festival, somebody asked Valerie like, oh, well, when are you just going to like get rid of this sitcom stuff? Like, so we can just like not have to do that. And she's like, yeah, but if we do that, then we're any other show. Like what we're doing, that's one of the hallmarks of our show. So I do think that it's important to keep Kevin in that sitcom world. I don't know. And I think Valerie may feel differently about this, but that's why she's the boss um, is that I think it would be very interesting to see Kevin in the single camera world. And I think that it would be very interesting to see how like sad and depressed. And not only is he sad, but I think that people would look at him and be like, Oh God, that guy's such a sad 
sad person, you know? And I think that the in the sitcom viewing of the scenes that he's in, it's all buried very deep in his cookie pocket. And, you know, it's really about his sort of blindly pushing anything that would be real down or the sort of performative way of living that he, you know, floats through life. We have another question from the Facebook group, and I think you may know this guy. Uh, a Tom Peterson asks, <laughs> for Eric, you're such a nice guy, dot, dot, dot. Always have been, dot, dot, dot. Was it difficult to play such a fun-loving jerk? <laughs> That's my dad. <laughs> uh, I, I guess. <laughs> when, when I got his, when he joined the group, I was I squealed to myself. This was so funny, though. It was so, it was so funny. cute, because we have, like, questions in order to get into the group, and right. we're like, what's the name of Allison's husband? And he's all like, I've always called him Eric. Yeah. And we I've were like, who is this guy? I've called him Eric for 40 guy? years. <laughs> we were like, who is this? And we're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> That's so funny. I love that. Yeah, my dad, he's a strong supporter of me. That's for both of my parents. But my dad loves to, I, I, my dad will hate that I'm admitting this, but I feel like there was a time that, you know, Broadway used to have all these chat boards and they used to get pretty catty where people would be like, oh my God, so-and-so is so terrible. And they went on as an understudy day and they missed the high note in this song or whatever. And my dad used to like make fake screen names to go and like defend me if anybody ever <laughs> said anything bad about me on these like Broadway chat boards. So my dad is a, a strong, uh, strong supporter of me. Um, but. In regards to how did I play a fun-loving jerk, uh, I don't know, Dad. I, you know, watching years and years of TV with you, I guess. Oh, man. I thought you were going somewhere really different there for a second. <laughs> I, I, so yeah, I that went, sounded went, bad. I, I was like, after years of watching, I was like, no, don't say I'm yeah. your dad. Oh my god, don't do that. Never <laughs> tear apart the group. <laughs> What are you doing? I like that you said you're going to tear apart the group. Like, like, like the yeah. Facebook group is the main <laughs> issue gonna, about this. Gonna, <laughs> well, the people are going to take sides. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Thanksgiving dinner might be uncomfortable now. Who's right. do I go to for Christmas now? <laughs> I'm oh like, go, I, I then join the group and I'm like, guys, I've been kicked out of my home. I need somewhere to go for Thanksgiving. Oh gosh, Please take me in. Funny. Oh, my gosh. Well, well, to piggyback on, on your dad's question, um, eight years ago, Anna Gunn, who played Skylar White, on Breaking Bad, you know, had to go to the New York Times and write an op-ed piece about how people dislike her character so much, but it was turning into personal attacks on her as a person. So are you worried about that at all? Is this going to cling to you as you go into the real world? You know, that is a great question. And to get real, real, real right now, I do worry a little bit about that because it is funny, you know, when you read how people respond to the show, you know, there is a lot of people who are like, oh my God, it's fucking hate this guy when can we kill him he's the worst get him fucking out of there i want to jam a knife in my eyes when i see him on screen you know like that stuff i get that it is coming from the way that the character is portrayed and stuff but you know i'd be lying if i didn't say there was a, a small part of me that sometimes i'm like Ooh, gosh. Oh, or, or people are like, <laughs> how would she marry this fat slob of a human? You know, like it, it can get a little like, okay, I know I'm playing a character, but like, you know, so I, I, you know, I don't think I'm at the point of writing an op-ed to the New York Times yet, but, but yeah, I, I do worry sometimes a little bit that people won't be able to separate that. Like, this is a character that I'm playing and I'm, you know, highlighting every possible bad behavior and bad look that I can give to sort of serve the story. 
But I, I, I suppose I, I, whenever I start to feel that way, I try to think, you know, I have, I have a decent long career body of work and, you know, people will think what they're going to think. If people are watching the show and they're aware of me as a person, hopefully I would get another chance to show them another side of me that they could see that that was a, a character that I was playing as opposed to, you know, my actual self. So I don't know. I, I, I really am wondering about the sitcom portion for you guys, because I know that we've seen clips from ATX of, of Mary Hollis and, and Annie talking about the sitcom portion. But what kind of challenge was it for you and Alex and Brian, especially given the larger scope of the show where, you know, it's we're trying to listen to that sitcom part, but we're also not, you know, taking it like a sitcom exactly. Sure. How do you kind of handle that? Well, I think that we really did try to truly just make a good sitcom. You know, one of the things that I liked is that the joke, to me, I felt, and having done, you know, a fair amount of multicam work, that it felt pretty right on. You know, the jokes weren't self-aware. They were jokes that would be on a sitcom. And so I think the challenge for us was, in a way, almost to not think about what was happening the week and a half when we weren't shooting the multicam and they were doing all the single camera stuff. I'd say one of the big challenges was that normally when you shoot a multicam, you have a full like week of rehearsal because you're essentially doing a table read on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're doing rehearsals and maybe a little bit of pre-shooting on Thursday, and then you have tape night on Friday. But we would do an entire episode in like two days. So all of the sitcom things were shot. Each episode was over two or three days. So we didn't necessarily have that like week of sort of refining bits or trying, you know, oh, what if we did this? And so for me, having done stuff that was more of a classic schedule where you had a full week to kind of try to work out some stuff, it was in fast forward because you essentially the first time you were reading the scene, you were going to be filming it 10 12 minutes later so that you didn't have that, that full week of wow. like trying out stuff that you normally would have. And and the reason for it is because the multicam stuff really does feel like a play. I mean, you really have to have the rhythms together between all the actors because it for it to be edited correctly, you need some of those wide shots where they're not just grabbing, oh, you're one line here and you're one line here. They have to sort of be working together. So that I would say that was the biggest challenge was in a way, not rushing it, but there was a lot less of the like working time for the sitcom parts. It's interesting. I, I'm so curious about the shooting schedule of it. Uh, we're, we're getting the time sign here because I know you have another thing to get <laughs> to. Um, but as we're heading into now, the, the season's over. Um, are there, and we're waiting for season two news, uh, are yeah. there any projects coming up that people can be on the lookout for you about how you'll be spending your hiatus or your downtime that we that you want to promote or let us know about? Sure. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I, am, I also appear as a voice on a kid's show called Madagascar A Little Wild. Um, where I play a pigeon named Anthony. It's uh, if you have young kids, it's a great show for um, you know younger kids. It basically takes the Madagascar characters uh, from those famous DreamWorks movies, but that now those characters are young and they're kids in Central Park Zoo, and I'm sort of their like older buddy that shows them around New York, and I basically get to show them and say, "Hey, kid, there's a you know a fire truck on Fifth Avenue. You got to go check it out." And then we go have all these fun adventures. Um, so you can see see me on that, which is on Hulu and peacock and i also just did uh i don't know if this is out there yet but i think i can say it um i did a uh, an episode of the upcoming lakers project for hbo with john c Riley. um just shot an episode of that um which will be coming out i think uh maybe next year so yeah that's okay. what i have coming up 
Very cool. And people can follow you while you're on all the social medias. I know you're active on Instagram. Yes, indeed. At Eric Pete is my Instagram. Or you can follow my fashion Instagram, which is at the portly gentleman. Uh, and that's all one word. <laughs> the portly gentleman. Uh, that's Here's a one way. Oh, we'll be following bit. it, Eric. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> I, I am. I am uh, the clothes that I had to wear on Kevin Can Fuck Himself were it was hard for me to wear those clothes because they were all so uh, unattractive. And big and baggy and track suits and stuff. In in life, I'm much more of a uh, tailored. I like to wear suits whenever possible, uh, not track suits, but actual suits. So uh, I I'm a big fashion fan. So you can follow all that stuff on the, the, the portly the, gentleman. The bespoke man is coming yeah. through here. <laughs> That's uh, right, Eric. If we get good news for season two, we'd love to have you back on. We still have like a ton of questions. We'd love to pick your brain. So I would love to. I would love to chat with you guys anytime. Uh, thanks so much for your time, uh, guys. Make sure you're checking out. Uh, Eric everywhere and uh, make sure you're also <laughs> catching up on uh, season one of Kevin Can Fuck Himself and make sure you're telling AMC you want season two. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Thanks, guys. It was great talking with you. Thanks. Guys, that was our interview with Eric Peterson. Thank you so much for coming on and, and being so generous with your time. It was a very busy interview day for him. Uh, now coming up is our interview with Brian Howe, who plays Pete McRoberts, Kevin's dad. This is a great interview. This is this was a really fun talk, and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as we did talking with Brian. Joining us tonight on Kevin Kim Podcast himself, Peter McRoberts himself, Brian Howe is here. <laughs> Brian, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I could not be happier to be here. I, uh, I've been really enjoying uh, listening to your guys' you know, take and, and, and analysis and theories about the show. It's really been a lot of fun. Uh, I think in a show that is so much about the accents, I think it's funny that we were brought together by me having a slightly impenetrable New York accent sometimes <laughs> and, uh, and a bad interpretation of a phrase. Uh, uh, he's a classic. Hey, it's that guy. Hey, it's that guy. Yes. 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 And, you know, Mike, it, it says so much more about me. <laughs> About what I heard than, than it is about what you said. And the thing is, it kind of just like glided by. And I just thought, did he just say hideous fat guy? Did he just, was that, is that what like, I know I am a little overweight. That's true. And then no. of course I spent the whole monologue in my head. Well, <laughs> well, you don't know how much like we had to do so much therapy with each other. I was like, Mike, that just doesn't sound like something we would say. I don't use the word hideous. And then he's like, but I don't we would never call anyone fat. And I'm like, I never would. I and then, like, we were having all this like self-analyzing moments. No, of, course, of course. And that's why I'm saying it speaks volumes about me. And uh, and and nothing. So let's we're gonna let that go. And, and we have a, we all... have a we have a budding friendship now, and it's wonderful. <laughs> and you know, day in the park is in the yes. future. I think. Oh, when we, I when, love that. When we're throwing back beers one day together, we'll tell the people gathered about it, and it will be funny. So. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, we are here tonight at the end of this eight episode ride, but I want to go back and talk about how you came about playing pete like what was the casting process like did it was this a normal audition for you did you have any idea what the show was and and how different it was from everything that's come before my audition i remember my my final audition for the role of pete 
And I remember my agent and managers, uh, my agents and manager telling me the name of the show was, I was like, it's what? Kevin can fuck himself? I went, I, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I don't even know what it is, but I want to know what it is. I remember my last audition for the role of Pete was my last in-person audition for anything. Oh, wow. Um, it was in February of last year. And it was at Felicia Fasano's office in downtown L.A. And it was in front of Felicia and Valerie and uh, Valerie Armstrong, our creator, and Craig D. Gregorio, our showrunner. And it was with Eric Peterson and Alex Bonifer, who had been cast as, um, as Kevin and Neil. And we did the scene that we read was the one at Tricky Ricky's uh, in the arcade. Oh, great episode. Mm. Great episode. Yes. And there was stuff that that unfortunately got cut out. There were some really great exchanges that they had to cut for time. But it was a really fun scene to do. I decided right away that I could tell I was a big cheerleader of my sons and that I was uh, tolerant of Neil, uh, who (laughs) really was obviously not the brightest bulb uh, on the marquee. But he was also fiercely loyal to my son and like his best friend. And I had to love the kid for being my son's best friend. So I didn't love the fact that he was a dim bulb, but I decided, <laughs> you know, Kevin, Kevin can do no wrong. Tellingly, and, and this was so young, we were so COVID young then, that at the time, all we were being told was there seems to be some kind of virus that came over from somewhere and some people in, where was it, Seattle or somewhere, are sick. So, you know what? Don't shake hands and just wash your hands a lot when you go home. And Lots of washing we were... of the hand admonishing going on in the early days. There was a lot yes. of washing of the hands, the 20 seconds, sing the alphabet, whatever, you know, wash your hands. And that's it. There was no social, no masks, no. We were all just going on our merry way and just not shaking hands. And we were supposed to start shooting at the end of March 2020, and we don't have to go into why that didn't happen. Going, I remember reading the, the initial script and not really being able to get, and not, no, through no fault of the script, not being able to get a firm hold on Pete. And I understood why, because it's not the Pete show. Right. You know, it's we, we really have to establish, there's a lot to establish. There's the, the two different viewpoints. There's the sitcom world that surrounds Kevin. And then and there's reality that surrounds Allison. And Pete, in those initials episode, those initial episodes, is a, you know, he's, he's one of the gang. Yes. He's just, he's off to the side. He's not playing a pivotal part in anything. But what I loved as we went on, and over the course of the summer, while we were waiting to hear when we'd be going to Massachusetts, we started having weekly table reads of every single episode via Zoom. Uh, and we would call them Secret Thursday Book Club uh, because <laughs> AMC Legal didn't like the idea of us having table reads because what, what, what if one of us started demanding money? So uh, we did it on the sly and uh, each and every Thursday. And remember, we were also all in lockdown. Right. So there was nothing else to do. <laughs> right. So right. every Thursday, we'd all like run to our computers at noon or one or whatever. And we would have our little meeting and we would read through that week's episode because Valerie and Craig, you know, there were a bunch of scripts obviously in the bank since they had plenty of time to write. So we got all the way through the season 
And I remember distinctly finishing episode eight. And it was Annie, one of my favorite people on the planet, who said, would you guys be interested in starting over? Like just starting next week, we'll go back to one and just read it through again. And we were like, yes, are you kidding? Uh, That's the most COVID thing ever. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Highlight of my my week. And so we read through the entire season again. And I think that really helped us when we finally got on the stage. There was a great familiarity between us as actors because we'd gotten to know each other you know, somewhat at least, not in person, but, you know, over the course of the summer and with the material. You're not struggling to remember that line. You've virtually memorized it already anyway. (laughs) So there was already a great comfort factor with us, but I couldn't get a big handle on Pete until I started to look at him as kind of a stealth character. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. That's something we've been talking about, Pete, on that whole, what part does Pete play? I was like, hold up a minute. Pete has a part here that's much bigger than we thought. Yeah, Pete is, is like, that's exactly what he's doing is he's being off to the side. You know, it looks like he doesn't care and he's just going along. But I think Pete's really tuned in to what's going on. Yes, Allison is a wet blanket when it comes to Eric's schemes and plots and plans and dreams. Uh, But Neil is there as kind of, you know, Kevin's enforcer. So Pete doesn't need feel the need to kind of step into that. And also I picked up on the fact that here Pete is supposed to be this priest, this person of the clergy. And his son is always coming up with schemes and plots and doing things that really are not ethical, uh, if, if at times not even legal. And Pete's really okay with it. And I remember we had a character conference once we all got to Massachusetts. Uh, we all individually got together with, with Valerie and Craig and Sean Clements just to talk about the character. And it came to my, you guys picked up on this, that, Pete, in the escape room, his son is coming up with all these things that he thinks are just ridiculous and people aren't going to pick up on. And they're deliberately kind of crappy. And Pete's reaction is, I've never been more proud of you. Right. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of like uh, big shyster energy coming off of uh, Pete and Kevin sometimes. It was the leading him in Tricky Ricky's through that lie. Like, take a lie one line at a time. Like, that part that I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's like really like. I'm sure. Because, you know, Kevin's panicking, and I look at him and I go, I'm sure you can answer those one at a time. Right. And then he gives he gives himself time to compose, and sure enough, he goes you know one by one through the lies, and I'm like, "There's my son. There you go." And then there's that really telltale line that was changed. We used an alternate in the finale when I say, "In my photography days," referring to Allison, we'd call that camera meat. And <laughs> and Eric turns to me and says, "You were a photographer," <laughs> and my line used to be. I was a Boston paparazzo. That's why we had so many framed photographs of an angry James Taylor. Right. <laughs> which, which was one of my favorite lines ever. And we changed it on set. It was because you always you always do the the version that's written. And then once you have a good take of that, then like, you know, Sean or Craig or someone will swoop in and say, let's try this, let's try this, which is really great fun. I love that. And they said, how about if it's Kevin that says, I didn't know you were a Boston paparazzo. 
is that why James Taylor was so angry at you or wanted to punch you in the face or whatever? And all Pete says is, no, that's not, that's not why. And he gives a great double take at it, too, which is really funny. Yeah, yeah. So in my character conference, it occurred to me, Pete's not a priest by vocation. I don't think we're aware yet of Pete's full past. I think there's a possibility that Pete entered the clergy for the same reason Whoopi did in Sister Act. Oh, and, nice. And the guys nice. in the movie Nuns on the Run. What if Pete hid in the clergy? Because why else would he have no compunction about getting kicked out for banging the nuns? He was, I, <laughs> or I, laugh I, at I, revelations. Right. He wasn't exactly finding revelations hilarious. That was such a telltale moment for me. I, I kept coming back to it in the subsequent episodes. Just like you got, you can't forget about this guy who's laughing at revelations. I've read it. It's not that funny. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's, re- it's really short on the hahas. There's something right. going on with Pete. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ah. So I said to them, I would love it in future episodes if we could just occasionally just let something drop, like the photographer thing. Or, you know, that time I was Whitney Houston's bodyguard, you know, or something, you know, like just some insane kind of other, you know, other. So like and just let it drop and go on. Like, don't even don't even get an explanation, <laughs> but build this like bizarre history of Pete, which is also, I think, a reason why Kevin sometimes refers to him as Pete and not dad. Yeah, Caroline definitely picked up on that a lot was the the relationship there, too. So, Oh, yeah. That was when I started my whole what part does Pete play segment. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like, I got to know this puppet master better. I mean, he's got a lot going on. Mike and I are both parents. We know what it's like when you do that hovering around a friend situation and then you be like, perhaps you want to say it this way. And you like just kind of inject. And that's totally what Pete does. I actually want to play a clip here because it's part of this whole religious aspect, but I think it's also interesting as it relates to Pete and Kevin as as a father-son duo. (laughs) Let's listen to this real quick, and then I want to talk about it a little bit. When you have a kid, it becomes all about them, which means it's not about me, and that sucks. (laughs) You were a blessing, Kevin. You never caused me a problem once. (laughs) Well, thanks, but that's because you were drunk off the blood of Christ, Pop. So, I mean, as the season went on, we kept noticing that there were these lines between Kevin and Pete that seemed to hint not only at the religious aspect of it, but just an interesting childhood for Kevin that also maybe hints at how or why he became who he is today as a husband to Allison. Uh, you know, how much backstory did you and Valerie and Sean and, and the other show's writers put together for Pete? How much revealed to you about what actually, what kind of father he is? Did you feel like you had a good sense of that by the time you got to the end of the season, if not at the beginning? I had a developing sense as we went because, because of that, because there was dad, there was Pete, and there's Pop, like in that uh, episode, in, the, in that clip you played, he calls me Pop. It established kind of a lack of intimacy, like an informality that told me probably hasn't been the greatest dad. He's probably been absent. He was a you know a bit of a drinker and, and you know, a rapscallion or a rogue or whatever. Is he around now because he has to be? Or is he around now because he chooses to be? We haven't seen Pete's place. Yeah, not clear where Pete sleeps at nighttime. He may just be in the chair. <laughs> well, we can be like, does he live with them? I'm not exactly sure. No, I'm saying no, that he doesn't live there. Okay, definitively. But he's there a lot. And <laughs> he's there so much that he has his own chair. 
Yes. Like that is like Pete's chair. But when he's not like, like, you know, because Kevin had to have had had to have Allison buy him his own recliner. Sure. Well, that's the cycle, right? There comes a point in your life where the <laughs> wife buys the husband her reclining right. chair. And that's something Kevin learned yeah. from his dad, you know. But, and it's, but it's interesting <laughs> that when I'm not there, Kevin doesn't sit in my chair. No, I'm, I'm sure there is, you know, there was I some mean, hot dog does. I mean, uh, you know, Patty does. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was some discipline, I'm sure, learned about not sitting in dad's chair because Kevin grew <laughs> well, up. Yeah, you know. That's the old Archie Bunker thing, too. Get out of my chair. Right. Totally. Right. Well, speaking Archie. of which, like looking at some of the other, you know, father figures that we've had in sitcoms past, where did you find your inspiration in, in Pete? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I don't think he's like a lot of other dads, but I'm thinking uh, like maybe um, the Peter Boyle character. Oh, on, yeah. uh, everybody loves Raymond, sure. Everybody loves Raymond. Or I drew inspiration from that and from, I think it's uh, John Mahoney on Frasier. Yes. Yes, yes, John Mahoney, yeah. Yeah, you know, just, just uh, you know, a, li- a little bit crusty and, and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, he's also uh, very much a kid, Pete is. He's got that kind of element to him, that kind of, you know, uh, he loves the dreamer aspect of Kevin, so... Maybe there's a dash of Ralph Cramden in there, loving the dreams, loving the dreams and screen, uh, schemes. Um, uh, but it was fun, you know, because the scripts were just so different and so great. It was it was fun to like I could pick and choose little qualities from these other sitcom dads, but I really had to kind of like it's you know build a bear, you know, you really had to kind of come up come up with with like well okay what is what is Pete gonna be. I remember having a, a conversation with uh, Eric very early on saying, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble getting like getting a grip on this guy. I'm not sure where to come from. I had gotten a network note after my audition that Craig and Valerie vigorously told me to ignore. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? What was it? Well, it was they wanted me to be crustier and more, more grizzled. That was it. More grizzled, crustier and more grizzled. And I was like. <laughs> I told him, I said, I, I don't know what to make of that. And they said, neither do we. Forget it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think that works, though, right? Because part of the reason Kevin gets away with all he does is because of his charisma. And again, that makes sense to me that that would be something he kind of learned and, and from watching Pete, you know? And, right. and, and so the way you play him, you see the father-son connection there. These, you know, they, they, they smile easy. They joke easy. They, they, oh, yeah. they cut you with like a stiletto, you know, like in between your ribs, and you don't necessarily realize it, you know? And uh, yeah, I think if you were more grizzled, it wouldn't work so well. No, it wouldn't. You have to believe that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Right, 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 right. Um, and I, I had to go in that direction that's what i said to valerie and craig and they were like bingo you know like go go with that trust you trust your cut you know (laughs) we love what you're doing please like you know chase that more so um we had a great yeah it was a great conversation the the character development thing and and i because it was early on i think they did go in and kind of tweak future episodes because this was in early october of last year we were all there we'd all done our quarantine and you know uh, we were all finally on the stages and, and starting to get to work. 
And um, we had this little meeting. So it was really productive. And I started going, you know, that's when I started saying the apple can't fall far from the tree. And, and I think I'm a great supporter of my son. I said, it's very telling that I'm this alleged clergy member, but I'm okay with his really being unethical and, and all this kind of thing. And they're like nodding and making notes and, you know, like... <laughs> That's really funny. So it was it was really, really uh, beneficial that I mean, that, I mean, that happened. I, I just like the fact that you're already setting up uh, and I'll help you with like the, the treatment for it, your own spinoff, you know, like, <laughs> uh, like the Pete, Pete on the run where, you know, where you have to go join the clergy and bang some nuns and stuff. I think that, that's right. fantastic. Yeah. And I, I think I have another theory that is especially pertinent to the last couple of episodes in that I don't think Pete knows in quotes but i think he sits and watches and listens i think pete has an idea of what went down i think that's a reason that in the diner during the campaign rally he really lets lays in on allison calling her camera meat um when kevin says if i'm like jfk that means i get to have a marilyn and i totally high five him and that the bar when we're tossing down shots uh and she comes in and she tosses down a couple. I said, is this fun, Allison, rearing her ugly head? I thought she drowned at that water park eight years ago. And I'm really laying it on her. I think it's pointed. I think it's more than just Pete joining in on the let's shit on Allison. There are so many little moments of that, too, where Pete can make those pointed comments in a way that Neil never does. You know, Neil is always kind of like the sitcom sidekick. But every now and then, yeah, Pete can turn his eyes and narrow and like laser beam focus into those right. comments to, to Allison or, or to Kevin or, or about Neil without Neil even realizing it. It's, it's a real yeah. skill he has. Yeah. At the end of the Grand Victorian, the three of us, me and, and Allison and uh, uh, Eric, uh, Kevin are are in the living room and and uh, uh, Kevin has got the big foam cowboy hat on. He's in his new recliner. He's just said, you know, don't worry, you'll take it back and get the right one. And I'm in my chair and I'm doing a puzzle or you know reading whatever. And she gets up and get, goes to her coat. Pete really shouldn't care. He she should. It's her house. She right. should just be able to get up and go out. But he says, where are you off to? Right. And she uses the line, you know, the joke line. She uses, I left something in my car. Right. Why would Pete care? Yeah, the controlling apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah. Like, where are you off to? You know, mm. I, I think there's something, that's why I'm saying, like, Pete's like this stealth character. Like, he's over there, he's on the side, and he's tossing in his, you know, fun jokes and supporting his son. And Valerie and Craig have said that if we get a season two, knock wood, there's some pretty great Pete stuff coming. And I would love for Pete to be able to cross over into single camera. You were the one that we were for sure was going to because there was like a there was a one moment where you kind of I don't know indicated something about your health and I I, I want to say it was a heart related thing and and Mike and I were both like oh, okay he's going to cross over to the drama area for sure because certainly he's going to have some sort of medical issue at some point so yeah right. you were the one we totally pointed at never Neil we th- we so thought it was you. I pictured, um, you know, being in the kitchen and making a sandwich and, you know, Allison comes in and it's all single camera. And what if we almost had like a decent, kind father-in-law, daughter conversation and then like the next scene in, in multicam, I'm just completely throwing her under the bus again. Yeah. <laughs> just mm-hmm. something really like 
F you. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm in with the crowd now. I can't be seen sympathizing with you or something, you know, anything along along those lines. But I have a feeling it'll probably happen, but I haven't been given any kind of uh, indications. But, yeah, he does make a lot of health remarks, you know, about, uh, uh, oh, I wish I'd have a stroke of genius instead of the regular kind. <laughs> exactly. Uh, right. You know, well, and a lot I'm, of stroke jokes, actually, in the sitcom world. A lot, a lot of, of stroke, stroke jokes. jokes. And, uh, oh, never mind, it's just an ambulance. And Pete gets up and says, don't be for me. Don't be for me. <laughs> uh, just like fun shit like that. I just, you know, I love that stuff. I, I want to go back again. This is out, this is you, Brian, the actor uh, question. But, you know, there's really, you've been on so many shows. Again, the, the you look at your IMDb and like, man, I've seen him in all of these shows going back for so long. <laughs> um, but there's really no show like Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Were there any particular challenges or differences in shooting this series than another show you've done? No, because I realized uh, it would have been challenging had I, like, especially for Annie and, and for Mary, having to go back and forth between the two, because right. it's a very different energy and a very different approach. But since Pete so far lives solely in the sitcom world, you know, there is the sitcom energy where you have to do it big. Uh, right. It's as big and, and brightly lit and colorful as, as anything else. The challenge is because you know the sitcom world affects the real world, the challenge is not playing that up too much. In other words, just play the scene as the scene as it is. Don't go commenting on it because you know the next scene in single cam refers to it. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to foreshadow, you don't want to anticipate, just play the world you're in as it is. Right, without any kind of foreknowledge or like other knowledge, right? You're just yeah, don't don't go overboard to like you want to say a joke line, you know, you want to always hit the joke, but just make it that. Don't hit the joke and then give it extra spin because Allison comments on it, you know, to Patty in the next scene. You know, you you can't, you know, because well, once you start doing that, then it comes across forced, and and I think that's just bogus. So I, that's the only real challenge to me. Mary had. You know, we were sitting on the couch between takes and stuff, and and she was like, you know, am I doing this right? You know, that kind of thing. And I said, yes. I said, yeah, you're doing everything right. Don't, don't. I won't allow self doubt. Let, let me doubt me. No, I said, you're you're nailing it. Don't worry, please. You know, but we all go through that, and especially for us because we couldn't have a live audience. Right, right. We, sure. had, we had a pocket of people in the corner when we were ready to tape. We had laughers watching on a, on, a, on a monitor, but not to provide a big fake laugh, but really just to help us with the pacing and the rhythm of the scene. Sure, and the stand-in for the laugh track that then we get to hear on the yes, exactly. Version, right? sure. So because it, to hold for silence is really hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, especially you know? when you're trying to be funny. That's like the hardest. Yeah, that's exactly it. And when you have that live audience there. Then, yeah, you get to employ your, your stage training and just hold for the laugh. And as it dies down, then you continue. But when there's no one there, you know, it's, it's hard. So I, I applaud production for giving us that, just that, that pocket of people not far from stage who were going to watch and just let laugh with the jokes and stuff. So that was a real uh, help. It, it wasn't big and huge and vocal, though. It still wasn't the size and magnitude of a big studio audience. So that still was challenging 
And we often had to do a line or a take or a piece of a scene over again because you got accustomed to just coming right in and you had to actually go, oh, no, wait, Kevin's line before me was funny, so I should give a beat. Right. I have to give a couple of beats because then my line's buried. And well, who wants that? Nobody. <laughs> one, one thing uh, we, we started focusing on a lot as we were doing the podcast was the title card and the the laugh, yes. the laugh track that they would put over whatever the title card was that week. And in seven of the eight episodes, it, it resolves out to the high pitch buzzing noise that kind of came to stand for Allison losing her mind a little bit. In the last right. episode, they don't have that. And so it's the laugh track that resolves resolves into silence and then just an awkward like <coughs> kind of like cough and really like an empty space and i imagine that has to be a lot of what it's like without a studio audience there trying to be funny you know just like this like this empty space of you hear someone sneeze backstage while you're waiting for laugh lines yeah oh my god yes the equivalent of crickets right exactly yeah, right the, the worst sound in comedy yeah. To say that line, you know, is a punchline. It just right. nothing happens, you know, because yeah. Craig because Craig forgot to laugh. You're, oh, you're no. right. so, <laughs> it's like when you're giving your speech and you have in your notes on the on the index card, hold for laughter. You know, and you, you actually you accidentally say hold for laughter. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, uh, just process wise, because you've done guest starring roles, but you've also done uh, lead roles here, where you're going to be on the call sheet every day, or at least every day they're doing a sitcom block. Is there different preparation for you as an actor when you're a lead on a show and you're really part of the thing making it go versus coming in as a guest star? Do you approach that differently as an actor, or is it just it, the job is the job, no matter how many lines I have that day? No, there's a definite advantage to being a part of the ongoing gang, because, again, you've been able to establish a rhythm and a, and a comfort with each other among us. We are so openly able to discuss a beat or a line or a thing or, you know, do you want me to wait here while you do that thing? Whereas when you're the guest star, you're best served by just like learning your stuff and getting there on time and plugging in the best you can. Whenever I've been a guest star on anything, I have tried to look at at least one episode of the show that I'm about to guest on just to get some kind of an idea, some kind of, because some are thoughtful and ponderous and some are very lively and quick, you know, and with a comedy, the rules are always the same. Just, you know, pick up your cues and, and make your entrance and hit your mark and be funny, you know, and that just, just try to serve that way. Right. Um, the process for this show was hard because of COVID. Right. Um, we tended to do an episode, an hour episode would take, like 10 days to make but the sitcom stuff was done in like two days wow so we would all come in and that was the only time we ever all saw each other so we all got together once maybe every week and a half did you do block shooting for the sitcom portions like did you shoot a couple of episodes worth of sitcom at once or it was just a sitcom portion for that episode you did um we did that a couple of times not every single time but yeah we did some block shooting and that meant that you know you'd come in, you'd see everybody, you'd you'd mask up, you'd go to set, take off your mask, blah blah blah, and have your fun. And we would have such fun doing the sitcom stuff. And then your day is done, and you'd go home, and you could uh, you'd be sitting in this apartment that you were in for fourteen days. Right, 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 right. 
you know, because they had to go off. Yeah, you know, even though you had to be tested three times a week, no matter where they were, you were still getting in the car and driving to either the stages or down to Brockton or wherever they were, because everyone had to get tested all the time. And that was a chance to kind of glimpse each other a little bit. But, you know, we really had to, and we were really good with following all the rules. So in terms of that, the process was really challenging. I don't, think god willing uh we would have to do it that way for season two Oof. i would i would i would hope hopefully not. that you know i'd be able to come home for you know, four yeah. or five days anyway and uh, be with my wife and our dogs and kind of you know see after things here so we'll we'll have to see but no in terms of the acting process the rules don't really change but there's definitely an advantage to being a regular over being a guest star. Well, a lot of our listeners have written into us and asked if we could possibly ask you for some behind the scenes stories, things that you remember from set or just like moments that were just like so hilarious that they could get a better idea of what it's really like behind the scenes. <laughs> there are a lot of problems with doors. Uh, for some reason, we, <laughs> okay. we had a lot of... We had a lot of issues with doors. The the swinging door in and out of the kitchen would so often just stay open. It just, you'd burst through it and it would like freeze, like, like in a Poltergeist <laughs> movie. It just did not swing shut again. And any one of us would be halfway through a scene and everyone else on the stage is kind of looking over your shoulder at the door because the door has to close. And the other one was the door leading outside of the living room the way Boggs card kept falling off the wall every time someone <laughs> closed the door, you will see if, if there's ever a, a blooper reel, there'll be a lot of, of uh, the door closing. At one point, Neil, what did Alex do? Now, Alex did a, a really good one. He not only knocked the Wade Boggs car, but I think the sconce, the sconce as well, and <laughs> right, oh knocked the small table over. And I was like, you know, are you having trouble over there, Barishnikov? What's going on? That's oh just God. leave. Just walk out. <laughs> Less flourish. Yeah, a couple of times he comes in or, or comes in or leaves in, a, in an almost Kramer-esque manner about yes. him, you know, in Seinfeld. A lot, of, a energy. lot of flailing uh, appendages for sure. He's so big, too. I, I, I mean, I, he, he just seems like a very large man, uh, Alex Bonifer. Um, yes, so, he just, is. Yeah, a, a lot of human He's, to be maneuvering around the set. <laughs> he is a lovable lug. I, I referred to him. We we have a little text circle, and I referred to him as a galoot, which is such an old <laughs> David Runyon's. And he looked it up, and he seemed to think that it wasn't complimentary. And I said, No, no, no. I said a galoot is a big lovable lug. Uh, I said, it's, it's, I said, you're awesome. You're like this, you know, you're a big guy. You could crush us all. And you're just so, so lovely and, <laughs> and sweet and funny. And I said, it's said with great affection. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> big, big teddy bear energy. The old galoot. <laughs> well, sure. I have to yeah. stop both of you for a moment because now I'm like going back to this, you know, this last episode and I'm thinking of Neil and we've all been loving him as this lovable lug, if you will. But my God, what did you think, Brian, of reading that final part where where Neil's going to put his hands on Allison's neck. Like, what? Yes. What What did you think? Yeah. I mean, that changed. I said to Mike, we got to go back and rewatch this entire thing with completely different eyes now. Yes, I remember reading it and uh, both so just by myself and also, you know, in one of the Zoom readings. I remember just everybody just getting really quiet. Like, this was like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, what? What is happening? 
I couldn't wait to see it on the show. When when season started, we had all seen, while we were still in Massachusetts, Valerie had shown us one through four, but I hadn't seen five through eight. So I was getting to see them for the first time, like everyone else was, you know, on TV. And it was so much fun. I, I remember thinking, because I had forgotten, and she comes home from the rally and has her big fight with Patty. And the minute I heard Neil's voice from the closet, I went, oh, shit, right. Mm. This scene. Because I, I knew what was coming, but I had no idea. Because I didn't stay on stage to watch. Right. We had just finished some multicam stuff, and I was wrapped. And some people, some of us were going to stay afterwards and watch the scene. And I purposely didn't. I said, no, I think I want to save this. Because it's not like you need me there to laugh. There's no laugh laughing. No, no, there's no laughing in that scene. No, no, no it's no. a scary. Uh, matter of fact, there was an interesting stage direction in the script that as the scene progressed, they were going to shoot for, like, hesitant audience laughter mm-hmm. until it quieted down, until you did actually hear just the one, <coughs> like, just mm-hmm. the one audience member just kind of coughing. Right. Maybe that's what that is a reference to. But I think they tried it, and it just wasn't going to work. It was going to sound weird. So I think they opted. To, it's like, it's sitcom world, but you don't hear any laughter. I, I mean, after he falls out of the closet, right. you hear a laugh when he falls out of the closet. Oh, no, yeah, and it, like it fades out and people become uneasy. Yeah, like, now they, I really yeah. don't know what you're talking about. And there's a slight laugh there and then and then right. it all you know fades out to nothing. But no, I remember growing very quiet and my heart beating a little faster and just thinking, yeah. holy shit, whoa, this is, this is. And I love the way by the time we get into that last episode there is very sudden and frequent switching between the two worlds yes Yes. whiplash Um, one of my favorites is when sam comes to the house and is talking with allison the camera is looking at allison and over her shoulder you can see the kitchen door and it's a perfect seamless cut because the door in single camera the door starts to swing open and the cut to kevin's sitcom world is perfect and it's abrupt and sudden and brilliant and it's like that kind of what we call hot switching back and forth and back and forth starts happening more and more often as the as the season goes right you start noticing that oh we're out of the house we're in a bar now like sitcom world isn't just in the house it was never not jarring yeah and it was never not jarring when you would see the sitcom world somewhere else either you know tricky ricky's or at patty and neil's house or at the bar it was always like oh wow like these guys are just out in the world like existing you know and yeah and then it it became where instead of allison entering the room into sitcom world kevin would leave the room and the camera would stay with allison and it would snap to single cam in the same second and i loved that i just i just loved that like the second he left the room reality has to sets in and that starts happening a lot too and i just love how they really started playing with the bouncing back and forth of between the two viewpoints between the two worlds i hate saying two worlds because it's really not two worlds but right the two perspectives maybe the two yes thank you Uh, yeah it uh there's a feeling of the worlds are begin to really bleed together 
and and I think that was yes. always the effect it, as it hit me when we were coming through it. The Neil scene, I you know, you're you're a guy who probably grew up watching you know uh, sitcoms in the '70s, and I, I don't know how much you watched All in the Family. There was a whole vibe, and I and I texted this as soon as I finished watching it. I, I texted Caroline about this that that whole scene with Neil and the laugh track kind of falling away was very reminiscent of uh, the episode where Edith Bunker gets attacked in the kitchen on like her birthday yes. the episode's Edith's 50th birthday and the the audience having some laugh track and then being very uneasy with what's happening because it, that was filmed in front of a live studio audience and you're getting their live feeling of not knowing how to react now because yes. it's still yes. bright light but it doesn't feel right and it was very reminiscent of that and both of them were so off-putting and very icky it's the kind of scenes where you really feel like you have to take a shower after you watch it it's it's so disturbing <laughs> you know no, yeah. in a way yeah. so a great job by i mean the whole show uh just putting it together i think was pretty seamless is there a scene that if you had the if you had the druthers they give you the editing bay and you could redo one of the sitcom scenes from the season in the single cam the drama world the drama perspective is there any scene that you'd like you'd be curious to see how it played out or how would it have a different feel done in that in the single cam world there was because i again it it got cut for time there was actually and this is going to be a, a strange choice but we had a really great exchange uh kevin and i in tricky rickies when we finally sent neil off to go get all the food mm-hmm. i have an exchange with kevin where i register concern Neil was starting to spin out because Kevin wasn't showing up. And this is very important to Neil. And I, I really had this exchange with Kevin's like, you, you know, you got to do something. He's like, you know, he wanted to talk to me about his feelings and it really creeped me out. You know? And Kevin's like, dad, you're a priest. I know, but that's just for the chicks. You know? <laughs> but it had, you know, it had jokey jokes in it, but, right. but I loved, I thought, Oh, wouldn't that have been cool? If had we been able to, we couldn't cause it's not, Kevin's world. Right. But I thought, wow, wouldn't it have been great for Neil to take off and for me to kind of pull him aside and go, you have to deal with this guy. He's spinning out and I don't know what to do about it because he's large and young and I'm old, you know, (laughs) and he's freaking out and you have to like get a hold of him. You know, I just thought it was very telling. And sadly, I mean, I thought it was very telling in the in the in the sitcom world too. But you know, it had to be. You can't have everything, you know. So yeah, you, no, have say, sure. you have to kill your darlings. And and you know, my motto throughout is, you know, it's not the Pete show. It's you know, it's 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 the Allison show. And you know, we have to serve that story. So I'm just going to show up on time, know my shit and have fun and (laughs) enjoy the hell out of being part of this just awesome, innovative, groundbreaking show. I love that. You know, we need more Pete in our lives, but while we're waiting for season two so we could get more Pete time, how about we get some Brian Howe time? Is there any other projects that we should be looking for that you will be doing? Hopefully, uh, we're just awaiting the news for season two, but is there anything we should be watching out for Brian time? Yes. Upcoming on Amazon, I have over the years, I have a really good working relationship that has benefited uh, me, no doubt, with uh, Aaron Sorkin. Uh, and Aaron just uh, wrote and directed a movie for Amazon called Being the Ricardos about the making of I Love Lucy. Oh, wow. And uh, Nicole Kidman will be uh, Lucille Ball and Javier Bardem will be Desi Arnaz. And um, I will be uh, for one scene and one scene only, which I shot shortly after, a couple of months after I came back from Massachusetts. 
I played Charles Kerner, the one-time head of RKO Pictures. And in a flashback scene, I have to summon a young actress in our stable of talent named Lucille Ball, who's just appeared in a movie with Henry Fonda because everyone else backed out of it, and she did a great job, and I'm summoning her to my office to tell her she's fired. Um, and so it's a solid, like, a four-minute scene that I get to have with uh, Nicole Kidman. And it was terrific fun, and it was such a great honor and privilege to work with Nicole. So that's coming, I think, this fall. Also, I am the director, casting director, lead actor, co-producer of a couple of digital comedy albums, which we're going to be uh, re-releasing soon, called The Audio Adventure Book of Big Dan Freighter, written by a friend of mine. And they're like, um, they're like Indiana Jones, but stupid. <laughs> okay. Um, Big Dan Freighter is me. My assistant is Dutch the Swede Anna Crombie. And uh, Millie Healy, town librarian. And uh, the three of us tackle uh, mysteries. But instead of titles like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, we have Big Dan Freighter and the Cubicle of Fear. Uh, <laughs> Big Dan Freighter and the Escalator of Forgetfulness. You know, stuff like that. And, <laughs> and we solve the mysteries in spite of ourselves. And they're tremendous fun and fully produced. So watch iTunes and Amazon Music for that coming out soon. Uh, they're very funny. They're not for kids, but they're kid-friendly. And uh, we've gotten a great feedback from those who we've given a little listen to. So I hope that's coming out soon. And uh, what else? Um, People should definitely go check out the uh, go check out Aaron Sorkin's newsroom uh, on uh, HBO. You can watch it, uh, the old episodes in which you yes. had a recurring arc. A great show, and you were great I in did. it. So yes, and my first uh, my first scene was seven and a half pages, and I had all the words. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh my god, Brian, that's quite a bit. You're you're a yes. theater, you're a theater guy at your core, aren't you? Didn't you didn't yeah. you start in the theater? Is, that's is, my is, background. Yeah. Is there an itch for you to get back as the world opens up? You know, do you find yourself thinking about going back there and and hitting those roots again? Oh, oh, I love the stage. That was my intro to Aaron. As a matter of fact, I did an Aaron Sorkin play instead of auditioning for pilot season in 2007 down in La Jolla called The Farnsworth Invention about the uh, the creation of TV. That's where I, I kind of got to know Aaron because I had this great part. One of these great parts where you just get to just find your mark, stand there and just say the words and you're brilliant. It's like one of those. It's like a gift of a role. And he remembered me from that. I and mean, he remembered me almost 10 years later it was a phone call I got saying Aaron's offering you this part on the newsroom. I didn't even have to audition. It was likewise for this, for being the Ricardos. So I'm in that, I'm in a very lucky little circle where every so often Aaron Sorkin reaches out and says, hey, you want to do this? <laughs> so I'm like, See, uh, you're a classic, hey, it's schedule. that guy. There you go. Exactly. That's where we get our, hey, we're, you know, it's that guy all the time. We totally recognize you. I have to ask you, Brian, I know that Pete likes to sit around and, read the Bible in his free time. But Brian, I imagine, watches some TV. What are you watching this summer? My wife and I love us some foreign TV shows. So uh, we've been watching um, from Britain a great show called Line of Duty. We've been watching um, uh, another one called Unforgotten. We just watched a documentary from Brazil about this woman, uh, Elise, 
who <laughs> who is of course kind of a folk hero down there because all she did was uh, shoot and dismember her husband. Uh, that's that's kind of fun. Elise, okay. I want to say like Montenegro or something. She's got a very love, lovely long last name that I'm just going to maul, so I won't say it. <laughs> and that's what we do. We're all about uh, foreign shows. There's a great show called Dark. That's all about weirdness and time portals and all this kind of stuff. It's very strange and old. I, Mike, we need to start saying that on different podcasts. I'd be like, this one's all about weirdness. <laughs> yes, yes, I love is. that, Brian. It's... This one is just weirdness, just weirdness. Yeah. This is weird. I don't know how to describe it, but what's the next episode? You know, oh, and uh, you know, uh, Money Heist. Of course, you guys must know Money Heist, which was originally called Casa de Papel. It's a Spanish show. It's eighteen episodes, and it's all one heist. Have you seen this? I haven't seen. It. I've heard I haven't of it. either. No, I, it's all on right. Netflix, right? It's on Netflix. Yeah, Netflix keeps telling me to watch it, and I haven't yet. <laughs> they re- they gave it a blame retitle called money heist which is just dumb it's not it's just dumb and if you if you're okay with subtitles i would suggest leaving yourself i would say start early start early like 5 p.m 6 p.m and just like settle in bring bring in food uh make sure you're you're fed and nourished and um uh, like a trough. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you it's it's uh, relentlessly paced and it's brilliant and it's called money heist Brian, we may have to start an international TV review podcast with you. I mean, you are filling a gap for us that we are not covering properly. So. Oh, my God. Um, another one called, uh, out of Britain called Bloodlands uh, with the great James Nesbitt. A lot of these are also their limited series. Like Bloodlands is a one-off, you know, so it's like six episodes and you're done. It's like one whole, like, story. Yeah, the Brits and the Israelis are great with uh, six, eight-episode series and being done. They tell their story, they move on, and uh, yes. you can, yeah. Apple TV Plus has um, Tehran, uh, which a great is show. A, yes. a great show made by the people who did Fauda, F-A-U-D-A, which is on Netflix. Also fantastic, and people should definitely watch. Yes, worth Ah, worth, see? Fauda I've seen, yes. Worth the subtitles, for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, you have to be okay with the subtitles. But then we watched all of Game of Thrones with English subtitles, so I don't have any problem with that. The advantage is I knew what everyone was saying. I know yeah. everything. I understood all of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Brian Howe also speaks Dothraki, which is fantastic. <laughs> so. Yes, and Klingon, because I'm not enough of a nerd. <laughs> he also refers to his wife as Khaleesi all the time. So. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> a little glimpse that's, to his private that's life. That's the only way she will have it. She's the only way. The only way. Uh, man, we have to cut this off before it goes any further. So um, uh, where can people find you on social media? I know you're on Twitter and you're on Instagram. Uh, where can people find you if they want to follow you, stalk you, interact with you? Not stalk you. but um, you. that That's it pretty much. I have a Facebook page, but I'm almost never there. And it's also, uh, it's not a public page. And, and I have a list of people who are trying to friend me. I mean, I just, like I haven't been to Facebook in, in a while. So they're best off with the Twitter and the Instagram. Instagram, I'm, I'm on under protest. <laughs> Instagram, I'm only on because of the show. I've got like Mary Hollis and like Eric, uh, Eric Peterson. They can go on Instagram and they can post like, this crazy it's got animation and titles and little wiggling objects and i'm like who are you people it's like everyone works for pixar 
<laughs> like, like, I'm lucky if I... If I can find a photo of my dog and put it up, that's a good day for me on Instagram. That's like, you know. So I'm probably most active on Twitter. Okay. And on Twitter, you are at Brian Howe, actor Howe with an E. Actor Brian Howe with an E on the end. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. I think that's me. Yes. You're you're <laughs> Brian Howe, actor on Twitter, and you're actor Brian Howe on Instagram. Just to make it complicated, uh, you switched it around on people. Keep them on their toes. Exactly. So. Yes. Because why make it easy to find me? You have to want it. Come Listen, on. You play a little to, hard to get. The people who exactly. find you, you're showing a little shoulder, a little ankle, and you're, you know, then enticing that's people. That's right. So. Come on, sailor. <laughs> that's exactly right and that's, that's where we're gonna right. leave it brian thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today hopefully we have you back on to talk about uh season two knock on wood and uh i, I hope we all get a season two and and thank you guys so much your enthusiasm for the show is really rewarding and entertaining and great and it's just tremendous fun to you know, listen to you two just like trade off on ideas and you know and <laughs> argue and and uh <laughs> agree and snipe at each other it's it's great fun because it all comes from the love of the show and that's greatly appreciated thank you for giving us so much to talk about i mean uh we didn't anticipate especially after the first four episodes spending so much time talking about pete the character but definitely beginning with episode five and and everyone since it was like more it became like a part of our notes and like our, our show outline was all right we got pete corner we got to talk about what what pete's up to so. what part does pete play uh, yeah what exactly is yeah i didn't expect anybody to talk about pete either so imagine how happy I am. I zoomed right in on Pete. I was like, what's Pete up to this week? Do you see what Pete's up to? Every week. That's right. <laughs> oh my so, goodness. knock on wood for season two for uh, everybody, and, and uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, again, uh, definitely check out Brian on uh, Twitter. Check him out on uh, Amazon coming this fall. Check him out on AMC with Kevin Can Fuck Himself, and thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking to us. We'll talk to you real soon, Brian. You bet. Thank you to Brian Howe for coming on. You gave us so much time. You you were uh, wonderful to chat with. Uh, Caroline, I hope you had a lot of fun talking with him as much as I did. I thought he was really funny and you know, really took us behind the scenes in a way that I always appreciate when actors do for uh, the shows they're on. So He was fantastic and so generous. I'm so, so, so glad we had an opportunity to talk to him. I hope we got to talk to more of our cast in season two. Same, same. Uh, yes, as much as we love talking to Eric, and again, thank you to him and Brian, thank you to him. Uh, uh, yeah, we want to talk to Valerie. We want to talk to Annie. We want to talk to Mary and Alex. We want to talk to everyone. We're so lucky to have Josh on early in our season and yes. be able to get us started with with our cast and crew. Okay, Mike, season two, do you have any predictions? Do you have any hopes? What do you want to see? Man, I don't know what I want. I know I have a couple of unresolved uh, threads here. Um, I've got four so far. I've got what do they do about Neil? Nick is alive. That is going to come back. I have to think that's going to come back. Again, the Robin Lord Taylor of it all is going to come back. Kevin's council run. I think that's going to be interesting because, you know, we didn't play the clip and maybe we'll play it as we end the episode here. You know, he's this everyday hero now. He is really sticking with this, it seems, this this council run, for, at least for right now. And once you've entered an election and people have started donating money to you, that's actually not something you can just walk away from. Like his right. boss, his boss has donated money. The people at the diner presumably have made some kind of money donation to him. You can't just walk away from that. That's illegal, brother. <laughs> that, you, that's campaign finance uh, fraud. You can't just do that. So he's going to have to stick with that. So that's going to be a plot point to pick up. And then we have 
this imbalanced love story that we have Patty's feelings for Allison, Alan's, Allison's feelings for Patty, and where do they go from here from the holding hands in the kitchen? Those are the four big unanswered threads that I'm, I'm cluing on uh, as we go into season two. I'm going to add on, you know, Kurt's tipping off of uh, Tammy's concerns. And so I think that she's she starts season two, obviously asking a lot more questions and peeping around all over the place and where that's going to lead. I mean, we didn't even talk about we we're talking about cops letting, you know, Kevin get away with murder. He shot an unregistered firearm, even if it is justified to shoot someone who's breaking into your home. That gun doesn't belong to Kevin. There are federal yeah. gun laws. <laughs> gun laws you can't just find a gun in your backyard and use it not okay there have to be questions about that or will there be because kevin used it so maybe not <laughs> maybe that's the idea it just kind of gets swept under the rug i mean maybe that's actually uh, you know an unattended benefit of having a kevin in your life is that sometimes you get away with shit when when their hand when it gets washed through them like money laundering i think it's exactly like that <laughs> this is caroline and this is mike thank you guys for listening all season long to kevin can podcast himself don't forget to rate review and subscribe so when we have bonus episodes or season two content Content, or if you just want to go back and listen to our old episodes, you'll never miss a thing. You can get us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be great because it would make you an everyday hero. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. I know you think you're some everyday hero, but you're just a dick. Everyday hero. I like the sound of that. <laughs> Kevin. That's your campaign slogan. Kevin McRoberts. Everyday hero. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> it's 